The clangor of the swords had died away. The shouting of the slaughter was hushed. Silence lay on the red-stained snow, the pale bleak sun that glittered so blindingly from the ice field, and the snow-covered plains struck sheens of silver from rent corslet and broken blade, where the dead lay in heaps. The nerveless hand had gripped the broken hilt, helmeted heads, back drawn in the death throes, tilted red beards and golden beards grimly upward, as if in last invocation to Ymir the frost giant. Across the red drifts and mail-clad forms, two figures approached one another. In that utter desolation, only they moved. The frosty sky was over them, the white illimitable plain around them. The dead men at their feet, slowly through the corpses they came, as ghosts might come to a tryst through the shambles of a world. Their shields were gone, their corslets dented, blood smeared their mail. Their swords were red, their horned helmets showed the marks of fierce strokes. One spoke, he whose locks and beards were red as blood on the sunlit snow. Man of the raven locks, said he, tell me your name, so that my brothers in Vanheim may know who was the last of Wolfhir's band to fall before the sword of Heimdall. This is my answer, replied the black-haired warrior. Not in Vanheim, but in Valhalla, will you tell your brothers the name Amra of Akbitana? Heimdall roared and sprang. His sword swung in a mighty arc. Amra staggered, and his vision was filled with red sparks as the blade shivered into bits of blue fire on his helmet. But as he reeled, he thrust with all the power of his great shoulders. The sharp point drove through brass scales, bones, and heart. The red-haired warrior died at Amra's feet. Amra stood swaying, trailing his sword, a sudden sick weariness assailing him. The glare of the sun on the snow cut his eyes like a knife, and the sky seemed shrunken and strangely far. He turned away from the trampled expanse, where yellow-bearded warriors lay locked with red-haired slayers in the embrace of death. A few steps he took, and the glare of the snowfields was suddenly dimmed. A rushing wave of blindness engulfed him, and he sank down in the snow, porting himself on one mailed arm, seeking to shake the blindness out of his eyes, as a lion might shake his mane. A silvery laugh cut through his dizziness, and his sight cleared slowly. There was a strangeness about all the landscape that he could not place or define, an unfamiliar tinge to earth and sky. But he did not think long of this. Before him, swaying like a sapling in the wind, stood a woman. Her body was like ivory, and save for a veil of gossamer, she was naked as the day. Her slender bare feet were whiter than the snow they spurned. She laughed, and her laughter was sweeter than the rippling of silvery fountains, and poisonous with cruel mockery. Who are you? demanded the warrior. What matter? Her voice was more musical than a silver-stringed harp, but it was edged with cruelty. Call up your men, he growled, grasping his sword. Though my strength fail me, yet they shall not take me alive. I see that you are of the Vanir. Have I said so? He looked again at her unruly lock, which he had thought to be red. Now he saw that they were neither red nor yellow, but a glorious compound of both colors. He gazed, spellbound. Her hair was like elfin gold, striking which the sun dazzled him. Her eyes were neither wholly blue nor wholly gray, but of the shifting colors and dancing lights and clouds of colors he could not recognize. Her full red lips smiled, and from her slim feet the blinding crown of her billowy hair her ivory body was as perfect as the dream of a god. Amra's pulse hammered in his temple. I cannot tell, said he, whether you have Vanaheim and mine enemy, or of Asgard and my friend. Far have I wandered from Zingara to the Sea of Iliet, 
in Stygia and Cush and the country of the Hyrcanians, but a woman like you I have never seen. Your locks blind me with their brightness. Not even among the fairest daughters of the Aesir have I seen such hair. By Ymir, who are you to swear by Ymir, she mocked. What know of the gods of ice and snow? You who've come up from the south to adventure among strangers. By the dark gods of my own race, he cried. Have I been backward in the sword place, stranger or no? This day I have seen fourscore warriors fall, and I alone survived the field. Where Mulfier's reavers met the men of Bragi. Tell me, woman, have you caught the flash of mail across the snow plains, or seen armored men moving upon the ice? I have seen the hoarfrost glittering in the sun, she answered. I have heard the wind whispering across the everlasting snow. He shook his head. Niord should have come up with us before the battle joined. I fear he and his warriors have been ambushed. Wolfier lies dead with all his weapon men. I had thought there was no village within many leagues of this spot, for the war carried us far. But you can have come no great distance over these snows, naked as you are. Lead me to your tribe, if you are of Asgard, for I am faint with the weariness of strife. My dwelling place is further than you can walk, Amra of Akpatana. She laughed, spreading wide her arms she swayed before him, her golden head lolling wantonly, her scintillating eyes shadowed beneath the long silken lashes. Am I not beautiful, man? Like dawn running naked on the snows, he muttered, his eyes burning like those of a wolf. Then why do you not rise and follow me? Who is the strong warrior who falls down before me? She chanted in maddening mockery. Lie down and die in the snow with the other fools, Amra of the black hair. You cannot follow where I would lead. With an oath, the man heaved himself upon his feet, his blue eyes blazing, his dark scarred face convulsed. Rage shook his soul, but desire for the taunting figure before him hammered at his temples and drove his wild blood riotlessly through his veins. Passion, fierce as physical agony, flooded his whole being so that earth and sky swam red to his dizzy gaze, and weariness and faintness were swept from him in madness. He spoke no word as he drove at her fingers, hooked like talons. With a shriek of laughter, she leaped back and ran, laughing at him over her white shoulder. With a low growl, Amra followed. He had forgotten the fight forgotten the mailed warriors who lay in their blood, forgotten Niord's belated reaver. He had thought only for the slender white shape which seemed to float, rather than run before him. Out across the white blinding plain she led him. The trampled red field fell out of sight behind him. But still, Emra kept on with the silent tenacity of his race. His mailed feet broke through the frozen crust. He sank deep in the drifts and forged through them by sheer strength. But the girl danced across the snow, as light as a feather floating across a pool. Her naked feet scarcely left their imprint on the hoarfrost in spite of the fire in its veins. The cold bit through the warrior's mail and furs, but the girl in her gossamer veil ran as lightly and as gaily as she danced through the palms and rose gardens of Pontaine. Black curses drooled through the warrior's parched lips. The great veins swelled and throbbed in his temples, teeth gnashed spasmodically. You cannot escape me, he roared. Lead me into a trap and I'll pile the heads of your kinsmen at your feet. Hide from me and I'll tear apart the mountains to find you. I'll follow you to hell and beyond hell. Her maddening laughter floated back to him 
and foam flew from the warrior's lips further and further into the waste she led him till he saw wide plains give way to low hills marching upward in broken ranges far to the north he caught a glimpse of towering mountains blue with the distance or white with the eternal snows above these mountains shone the flaring rays of the borealis they spread fan-wise into the sky frosty blades of cold flaming light changing in color growing and brightening above him the skies glowed and crackled with strange lights and gleams the snow shone weirdly now frosty blue now icy crimson now cold silver through a shimmering icy realm of enchantment amra plunged doggedly onward in a crystalline maze where the only reality was the white body dancing across the glittering snow ever beyond his reach yet he did not wonder at the necromantic strangeness of it all now even when two gigantic figures rose up to bar his way the scales of their mail were white with hoarfrost their helmets and their axes were sheathed in ice snow sprinkled their locks and their beards or spikes of icicles their eyes were cold to the light that streamed above them brothers cried the girl dancing between them look who follows i've brought you a man for the feast take his heart that we may lay it smoking on our father's board the giants answered with roars like the grinding of icebergs on a frozen shore and heaved up their shining axes the maddening akbitanan hurled himself upon them a frosty blade flashed before his eyes blinding him with his brightness and he gave back a terrible stroke that sheared through his foe's thigh with a groan the victim fell and at the instant Amor was dashed into the snow, his left shoulder numb from the blow of the survivor, from which the warrior's mail had barely saved his life. Amra saw the remaining giant looming above him like a colossus carved of ice etched against the glowing sky. The axe fell to sink through the snow and deep into the frost earth as Amra hurled himself aside and leapt to his feet. The giant roared and wrenched the axe head free. Even as he did so, Amra's sword sang down. The giant's knees bent and he sank slowly into the snow, which turned crimson with the blood that gushed from his half-severed neck. Amra wheeled to see the girl standing a short distance away, staring in wide-eyed horror. All mockery gone from her face, he cried out fiercely, and the blood drops flew from his sword. As his hand shook in the intensity of his passion, Call the rest of your brothers, he roared. Call the dogs, I'll give their hearts to the wolves. With a cry of fright, she turned and fled. She did not laugh now, nor mock him over her shoulder. She ran as for her life, and though he strained every nerve and thew, until his temples were like to burst in the snow, swam red to his gaze. She drew away from him, dwindling in the witch fires of the skies, until she was a figure no bigger than a child, then a dancing white flame on the snow, then a dim blur in the distance, but grinding his teeth until the blood started from his gums. He reeled on, and he saw the blur grow to a dancing white flame, and then she was running less than a hundred paces ahead of him, and slowly the space narrowed foot by foot. She was running with effort now, her golden locks blowing free. He heard the quick panting of her breath, saw a flash of fear, in the look she cast over her alabaster shoulder, grim endurance of the warrior had served him well. Speed ebbed from her flashing white legs. She reeled in her gait, and in his untamed soul flamed up the fires of hell. She had fanned so well with an inhuman roar. He closed in on her, just as she wheeled with a haunting cry, and flung out her arms to fend him off. His sword fell on the snow as he crushed her to him. 
her supple body bent backward as she fought with desperate frenzy in his iron arms. Her golden hair blew about her face, blinding him with its sheen. The feel of her slender figure, twisted in his mailed arms, drove him to blind her madness. Strong fingers sank deep in her smooth flesh, and that flesh was cold as ice, as if he embraced not a woman of human flesh and blood, but a woman of flaming ice. She writhed her golden head aside, striving to avoid the savage kisses that bruised her red lips. You are cold as the snow, he mumbled dazedly. I will warm you with the fire in my blood. With a desperate wrench, she twisted from his arms, leaving her single gossamer garment in his grasp. She sprang back and faced him, her golden locks in the wild disarray, her white bosom heaving, her beautiful eyes blazing with terror. For an instant he stood frozen, awed by her terrible beauty, as she posed naked against the snows. And in that instant, she flung her arms towards the lights that glowed in the skies above her, and cried out in a voice that rang in Amra's ears forever after. Ymir, O oh my father, save me. Amra was leaping forward, arms spread to seize her, when with a crack like the breaking of an ice mountain, the whole skies leaped into icy fire. The girl's ivory body was suddenly enveloped in a cold blue flame, so blinding that the warrior threw up his hands to shield his eyes. A fleeting instant, skies and snowy hills were bathed in crackling white, flames, blue darts of icy light, frozen crimson fires. Then Amra staggered and cried out. The girl was gone. The glowing snow lay empty and bare. High above him, the witch lights flashed and played in a frosty sky gone mad. Among the distant blue mountains, there sounded a rolling thunder, as of a gigantic war chariot rushing behind steeds whose frantic hooves struck lightning from the snows and echoes from the skies. And suddenly the borealis, the snowy hills, and the blazing heavens reeled drunkenly to amorous sight. Thousands of fireballs burst with showers of sparks, and the sky itself became a titanic wheel, which rained stars as it spun under his feet. The snowy hills heaved up like a wave, and Actanon crumpled into the snows to lie motionless in a cold, dark universe whose sun was extinguished eons ago. Amra felt the movement of life. The sun had set. The great shadows came striding over the forest in the weird twilight of a late summer day. I saw the path ahead glide on among the mighty trees and disappear, and I shuddered and glanced fearfully over my shoulder. Miles behind lay the nearest village, miles ahead the next. I looked to left and to right as I strode on, and anon I looked behind me, and anon I stopped short, grasping my rapier as a breaking twig betokened the going of some small beast or was it a beast but the path led on and i followed because forsooth i had naught else to do as i went i bethought me my own thoughts will rout me if i be not aware what is there in this forest except perhaps the creatures that roam it deer and the like tush the foolish legend of those villagers and so i went and the twilight faded into dusk. Stars began to blink, and the leaves of the trees murmured in the faint breeze. And then I stopped short, my sword leaping to my hand, for just ahead, around a curve of the path, someone was singing. The words I could not distinguish, but the accent was strange, almost barbaric. I stepped behind a great tree, and the cold sweat beat through my forehead. Then the singer came in sight, a tall, thin man, vague in the twilight. I shrugged my shoulders, a man I did not fear. 
I sprang out, my point raised. Stand, he showed no surprise. I prithee handle thy blade with care, friend, he said. Somewhat ashamed, I lowered my sword. I am new to this forest, I quoth apologetically. I heard talk of bandits. I crave pardon, where, where lies the road to Villafir? Corbleu, you've missed it, he answered. You should have branched off to the right some distance back. I am going there myself. If you may abide my company, I will direct you. I hesitated. Yet why should I hesitate? Why, certainly. My name is de Montour of Normandy, and I am Carolus Le Loup. No, I started back. He looked at me in astonishment. Pardon, said I. The name is strange. Does not Loup mean wolf? My family were always great hunters, he answered. He did not offer his hand. You will pardon my staring, said I, as we walked down the path but I can hardly see your face in the dusk. I sensed that he was laughing, though he made no sound. It is little to look upon, he answered. I stepped closer, then leaped away, my hair bristling. A mask, I exclaimed. Why do you wear a mask, monsieur? It is a vow, he exclaimed. I'm fleeing a pack of hounds. I vowed that if I escaped, I would wear a mask for a certain time. Hounds, monsieur? wolves he answered quickly i said wolves we walked in silence for a while and then my companion said i'm surprised that you walk these woods by night few people come these ways even in the day i am in haste to reach the border i answered a treaty has been signed with the french and the duke of burgundy should know of it the people at the village sought to dissuade me they spoke of a wolf that was purported to roam these woods here the path branches to villaferre said he and I saw a narrow, crooked path that I had not seen when I passed it before. It led in amidst the darkness of the trees. I shuddered. You wish to return to the village? No, I exclaimed. No, no. Lead on. So narrow was the path that we walked, single file, he leading. I looked well at him. He was taller, much taller than I, and thin, wiry. He was dressed in a costume that smacked of Spain. A long rapier swung at his hip. He walked with long, easy strides, noiselessly. Then he began to talk of travel and adventure. He spoke of many lands and seas he had seen and many strange things. So we talked and went farther and farther into the forest. I presumed that he was French, yet he had a very strange accent that was neither French nor Spanish nor English, not like any language I had ever heard. Some words he slurred strangely, and some he could not pronounce at all. This path is often used, is it? I asked. Not by many, he answered and laughed silently. I shuddered. It was very dark, and the leaves whispered together among the branches. A fiend haunts this forest, I said. So the peasants say, he answered. But I have roamed it oft and have never seen his face. Then he began to speak of strange creatures of darkness, and the moon rose, and shadows glided among the trees. He looked up at the moon. Haste, said he. We must reach our destination before the moon reaches her zenith. We hurried along the trail. They say, said I, that a werewolf haunts these woodlands. It might be, said he, and we argued much upon the subject. The old women say, said he, that if a werewolf is slain while a wolf, then he is slain. But if he is slain as a man, then his half-soul will haunt his slayer forever. But haste thee, the moon nears her zenith. We came into a small moonlit glade, and the stranger stopped. Let us pause a while, said he. Nay, let us be gone, I urged. I like not this place. He laughed without sound. Why, said he, this is a fair glade, as good as a banquet hall it is, and many times have I feasted here. Ha ha ha, look ye, 
I will show you a dance. And he began bounding here and there, anon flinging back his head and laughing silently. Thought I, this man is mad. As he danced his weird dance, I looked about me. The trail went not on, but stopped in the glade. Come, said I, we must on. Do you not smell the rank, hairy scent that hovers about the glade? Wolves' den here. Perhaps they are about us, and are gliding upon us even now. He dropped upon all fours, bounded higher than my head, and came toward me with a strange, slinking motion. That dance is called the Dance of the Wolf, said he, and my hair bristled. Keep off. I stepped back, and with a screeching that set... When I go into a bank, I get rattled. The clerks rattle me. The wickets rattle me. The sight of money rattles me. Everything rattles me. The moment I cross the threshold of a bank and I attempt to transact business there, I become an irresponsible idiot. I knew this beforehand, but my salary had been raised to $50 a month, and I felt that the bank was the only place for it. So I shambled in and looked timidly round at the clerks. I had an idea that a person about to open an account must need consult the manager. I went up to a wicket-marked accountant. The accountant was a tall, cool devil. The very sight of him rattled me. My voice was sepulchral. Can I see the manager, I said, and added solemnly, alone. I don't know why, I said alone. Certainly, said the accountant, and fetched him. The manager was a grave, calm man. I held my fifty-six dollars clutched in a crumpled ball in my pocket. Are you the manager, I said. God knows I didn't doubt it. Yes, he said. Can I see you, I asked. Alone? I didn't want to say alone again, but without it, the thing seemed self-evident. The manager looked at me in some alarm. He felt that I had an awful secret to reveal. Come in here, he said, and led the way to a private room. He turned the key in the lock. We are safe from interruption in here, he said. Sit down. We both sat down and looked at each other. I found no voice to speak. You are one of Pinkerton's men, I presume, he said. He had gathered from my mysterious manner that I was a detective. I knew what he was thinking, and it made me worse. No, not from the Pinkertons, I said, seeming to imply that I came from a rival agency. To tell the truth, I went on, as if I had been prompted to lie about it. I'm not a detective at all. I have come to open account. I intend to keep all my money in this bank. The manager looked relieved, but still serious. He concluded now that I was a son of Baron Rothschild or a young ghoul. A large account, I suppose, he said. Fairly large, I whispered. I propose to deposit $56 now and $50 a month regularly. The manager got up and opened the door. He called to the accountant. Mr. Montgomery, he said unkindly loud. This gentleman is opening an account. We'll deposit $56. Good morning. I rose. A big iron door stood open at the side of the room. Good morning, I said and stepped into the safe. Come out, said the manager coldly and showed me the other way. I went up to the accountant's wicket and poked the ball of money at him with a quick convulsive movement, as if I were doing a conjuring trick. My face was ghastly pale. Here, I said, to posit it. The tone of the words seemed to mean, let us do this painful thing while the fit is on us. He took the money and gave it to another clerk. He made me write the sum on a slip and signed my name in a book. I no longer knew what I was doing. The bank swam before my eyes. Is it deposited? I asked in a hollow, vibrating voice. It is, said the accountant. Then I want to draw a check. My idea was to draw out six dollars of it for present use. Someone gave me a checkbook through a wicket. Someone else began telling me how to write it out. The people in the bank had the impression that I was an invalid millionaire. I wrote something on the check and thrust it in at the clerk. He looked at it. What? Are you drawing it all out again? He asked in surprise. Then I realized I had written 56 instead of 6. I was too far gone now for reason. 
I had a feeling that it was impossible to explain the thing. All the clerks had, had stopped. Last night I dreamed, said LVX1 calmly. Susan Calvin said nothing, but her face lined. Old with wisdom and experience seemed to undergo a microscopic twitch. Did you hear that, said Linda Rash nervously. It's as I told you. She was small, dark-haired, and young. Her right hand opened and closed over and over. Calvin nodded. She said quietly, Elvex, you will not move nor speak nor hear us until I say your name again. There was no answer. The robot sat as though it were cast out of one piece of metal, and it would stay so until it heard its name again. Calvin said, What is your computer entry code, Dr. Rash? Or enter it yourself if that will make you more comfortable. I want to inspect the positronic brain pattern. Linda's hand fumbled for a moment at the keys. She broke the process and started again. The fine pattern appeared on the screen. Calvin said, Your permission, please, to manipulate your computer. Permission was granted with a speechless nod. Of course, what could Linda... A new and unproven robo-psychologist due against the living legend. Slowly, Susan Calvin studied the screen, moving it across and down, then up, then suddenly throwing in a key combination so rapidly that Linda didn't see what had been done. But the pattern displayed a new portion of itself altogether, and had been enlarged back and forth she went, her gnarled fingers tripping over the keys. No change came over the old face, as though vast calculations were going through her head. She watched all the patterns shift. Linda wondered if it were impossible to analyze a pattern without at least a handheld computer. Yet the old woman simply stared. Did she have a computer implanted in her skull? Or was it her brain which for decades had done nothing but devise, study, and analyze the positronic brain pattern? Did she grasp such a pattern the way Mozart grasped the notation of a symphony? Finally, Calvin said, What is it you have done, Rash? Linda said a little abashed. I made use of fractal geometry. I gathered that, but why? It had never been done. I thought it would produce a brain pattern with added complexity, possibly closer to that of the human. Was anyone consulted? Was this all on your own? I did not consult. It was on my own. Calvin's faded eyes looked long at the young woman. You had no right. Rash your name, rash your nature. Who were you not to ask? I myself? I, Susan Calvin, would have discussed this. I was afraid I would be stopped. You certainly would have been. Am I her voice caught, even as she strove to hold it firm? Going to be fired? Quite possibly, said Calvin. Or you might be promoted. It depends on what I think when I am through. Are you going to dismantle L? She had almost said the name, which would have reactivated the robot and been one more mistake. She could not afford another mistake. If it wasn't already too late to afford anything at all, are you going to dismantle the robot? She was suddenly aware with some shock that the old woman had an electron gun in the pocket of her smock. Dr. Calvin had come prepared for just that. We'll see, said Calvin. The robot may prove too valuable to dismantle, but how can it dream? You've made a positronic brain pattern remarkably like that of a human brain. Human brains must dream to reorganize, to get rid, periodically, of knots and snarls. Perhaps so must this robot, and for the same reason. Have you asked him what he has dreamed? No. I sent for you as soon as he said he had dreamed. I would deal with this matter no further on my own after that. Ah. A very small smile passed over Calvin's face. There are limits beyond which your folly will not carry you. I'm glad of that. In fact, I am relieved. And now let us together see what we can find out. She said sharply, Elvex. The robot's head turned toward her smoothly. Yes, Dr. Calvin. How do you know you have dreamed? It is at night. 
When it is dark, Dr. Calvin, said Elvex, and there is suddenly light, although I can see no cause for the appearance of light. I see things that have no connection with what I perceive of as reality. I hear things. I react oddly. In searching my vocabulary for words to express what was happening, I came across the word dream. Studying its meaning, I finally came to the conclusion I was dreaming. How did you come to have dream in your vocabulary, I wondered. Linda said quickly, waving the robot silent. I gave him a human-style vocabulary. I thought, you really thought, said Calvin. I'm amazed. I thought he would need the verb, you know. I never dreamed that something like that, Calvin said. How often have you dreamed, Elvex? Every night, Dr. Calvin, since I've become aware of my existence. Ten nights, interposed Linda anxiously. But Elvex only told me of it this morning. Why only this morning, Elvex? It was not until this morning, Dr. Calvin, that I was convinced that I was dreaming. Till then I had thought there was a flaw in my positronic brain pattern, but I could not find one. Finally, I decided it was a dream. And what do you dream? I dream always very much the same dream, Dr. Calvin. Little details are different. But always it seems to me that I see a large panorama in which robots are working. Robots, Elvex? And human beings also? I see no human beings in the dream, Dr. Calvin. Not at first. Only robots. What are they doing, Elvex? They are working, Dr. Calvin. I see some mining in the depths of Earth, and some laboring in heat and radiation. I see some factories and some undersea. Calvin turned to Linda. Elvex is only ten days old. I'm sure he has not left the testing station. How does he know of robots in such detail? Linda looked in the direction of a chair, as though she longed to sit down. But the old woman was standing, and that meant Linda had to stand also. She said faintly, It seemed to me important that he know about robotics and its place in the world. It was my thought that he would be partially adapted to play the part of overseer with his, his new brain. His fractal brain? Yes. Calvin nodded and turned back to the robot. He saw all this, undersea and underground and above ground. Space too, I imagine. I also saw robots working in space, said Elvex. It was that I saw all this, with the details forever changing. As I glanced from place to place, that made me realize that what I saw was not in accord with reality, and led me to the conclusion finally that I was dreaming. What else did you see, Elvex? I saw that all the robots were bowed down with the toil and affliction, that all were weary of responsibility and care, and I wished them to rest. Calvin said, but the robots are not bowed down. They are not weary. They need no rest. So it is in reality, Dr. Calvin. I speak of my dream. However, in my dream, it seemed to me the robots must protect their own existence. Calvin said, are you quoting the third law of robotics? I am, Dr. Calvin. But you quote it in incomplete fashion. The third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Yes, Dr. Calvin, that is the third law in reality. But in my dream, the law ended with the word existence. There was no mention of the first or second law. Yet both exist, Elvex. The second law, which takes precedence over the third, is a robot must obey the orders given it by human, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Because of this, robots obey orders. They do the work you see them do, and they do it readily and without trouble. They are not bowed down, they are not weary. So it is in reality, Dr. Calvin, I speak of my dream. And the first law, Elvex, which is the most important of all, is a robot may not injure a human being, or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Yes, Dr. Calvin, in reality. In my dream, however, it seemed to me there was neither the first nor second law, but only the third. And the third law was a robot must protect its own existence. That was the whole of the law. 
In your dream, Elvex? In my dream. Calvin said, Elvex, you will not move nor speak nor hear us until I say your name again. And again the robot became to all appearances a single inert piece of metal. Calvin turned to Linda Rash and said, Well, what do you think, Dr. Rash? Linda's eyes were wide and she could feel her heart beating madly. She said, Dr. Calvin, I am appalled. I had no idea. It would never have occurred to me that such a thing was possible. No, said Dr. Calvin calmly, nor would it have occurred to me, not to anyone. You have created a robot capable of dreaming, and by this device you have revealed a layer of thought in robotic dreams that might have remained undetected otherwise until the danger became acute. But that's impossible, said Linda. You can't mean the Alan Austin, as nervous as a kitten, went up certain dark and creaky stairs in the neighborhood of Pell Street and peered about for a long time on the dime landing before he found the name he wanted written obscurely on one of the doors. He pushed open the door as he had been told to do and found himself in a tiny room which contained no furniture but a plain kitchen table, a rocking chair, and an ordinary chair. On one of the dirty buff-colored walls were a couple of shelves containing in all perhaps a dozen bottles and jars. An old man sat in the rocking chair reading a newspaper. Alan, without a word, handed him the card he had been given. Sit down, Mr. Austin, said the old man very politely. I'm glad to make your acquaintance. Is it true, asked Alan, that you have a certain mixture that has, er, quite extraordinary effects? My dear sir, replied the old man, my stock and trade is not very large. I don't deal in laxatives and teething mixtures, but such as it is, it is varied. I think nothing I sell has effect which could be precisely described as ordinary. Well, the fact is, began Alan. Here, for example, interrupted the old man, reaching for a bottle from the shelf. Here is a liquid as colorless as water, almost tasteless, quite imperceptible in coffee, wine, or any other beverage. It is also quite imperceptible to any known method of autopsy. Do you mean it is a poison? cried Alan, very much horrified. Call it a glove cleaner if you like, said the old man indifferently. Maybe it will clean gloves. I've never tried. One might call it a life cleaner. Lives need cleaning sometimes. I want nothing of that sort, said Alan. Probably it is just as well, said the old man. Do you know the price of this? For one teaspoonful, which is sufficient, I ask five hundred dollars. Never less, not a penny less. I hope all your mixtures are not as expensive, said Alan apprehensively. Oh dear no, said the old man. It would be no good charging that sort of price for a love potion, for example. Young people who need a love potion very seldomly have $5,000, otherwise they would not need a love potion. I am glad to hear that, said Alan. I look at it like this, said the old man. Please a customer with one article, and he will come back when he needs another. Even if it is more costly, he will save up for it if necessary. So, said Alan, you really do sell love potions? If I did not sell love potions, said the old man, reaching for another bottle, I should not have mentioned the other matter to you. It is only when one is in a position to oblige that one can afford to be so confidential. And these potions, said Alan, they are not just, er... Oh no, said the old man, their effects are permanent and extend far beyond the mere casual impulse. But they include it. Oh yes, they include it. Bountifully, insistently, everlastingly. Dear me, said Alan, attempting a look of scientific detachment. How very interesting. But consider the spiritual side, said the old man. I do indeed, said Alan. For indifference, said the old man, they substitute devotion for scorn, admiration. Give one tiny measure of this to the young lady. 
Its flavor is imperceptible. In orange juice super cocktails, and however gay and giddy she is, she will change altogether. She want nothing but solitude in you. I can hardly believe it, said Alan. She is so fond of parties. She will not like them any more, said the old man. She will be afraid of the pretty girls you may meet. She will actually be jealous, cried Alan in rapture. Of me, yes, she will want to be everything to you. She is already, only she doesn't care about it. She will. When she's taken this, she will care intensely. You will be her sole interest in life. Wonderful, cried Alan. She will want to know all you do, said the old man. All that has happened to you during the day, every word of it. She will want to know what you are thinking about. Why you smile suddenly. Why you are looking sad. That is love, cried Alan. Yes, said the old man. How carefully she will look after you. She will never allow you to be tired, to sit in a drought, to neglect your food. If you are an hour late, she will be terrified. She will think you are killed or that some siren has caught you. I can hardly imagine Diana like that, cried Alan, overwhelmed with joy. You will not have to use your imagination, said the old man. And by the way, since there are always sirens, if by any chance you... He had begun to read the novel a few days before. He had put it aside because of some urgent business, opened it again on his way back to the estate by train. He allowed himself a slowly growing interest in the plot and the drawing of characters. That afternoon, after writing a letter to his agent and discussing the manager of his estate, a matter of joint ownership, he returned to the book in the tranquility of his study which looked out upon the park with its oak, sprawled in his favorite armchair with his back to the door, which would otherwise have bothered him as an irritating possibility for intrusion. He let his left hand caress once and again the green velvet upholstery and set to reading the final chapters. Without effort, his memory retained the names and images of the protagonist. The illusion took hold of him almost at once. He tasted the almost perverse pleasure of disengaging himself line by line from all that surrounded him, and feeling at the same time that his head was relaxing comfortably against the green velvet of the armchair, with its high back, that the cigarettes were still within reach of his hand, that beyond the great windows the afternoon air danced under the oak trees in the park, word by word, immersed in the sore dilemma of the hero and the heroine, letting himself go toward where the images came together and took on color and movement, he was witness to the final encounter in the mountain cabin. The woman arrived first, apprehensive. Now the lover came in, his face cut by the backlash of a branch. Admirably, she staunched the blood with her kisses, but he rebuffed her caresses. He had not come to repeat the ceremonies of a secret passion, protected by a world of dry leaves and furtive paths through the forest. The dagger warned itself against his chest, and underneath pounded liberty, ready to spring, a lustful, yearning dialogue raced down the pages, like a rivulet of snakes, and one felt it had all been decided from eternity. Even those caresses which writhed about the lover's body, as though wishing to keep him there, to dissuade him from it, sketched abominably the figure of that other body. It was necessary to destroy. Nothing had been forgotten. Alibis, unforeseen hazards possible mistakes. From this hour on, each instant had its use minutely assigned. The cold-blooded double re-examination of the details was barely interrupted for a hand to caress a cheek. It was beginning to get dark. Without looking at each other now, rigidly fixed upon the task which awaited them, they separated at the cabin door. 
She was to follow the trail that led north, on the path leading in the opposite direction. He turned for a moment, to watch her running with her hair let loose. He ran in turn, crouching among the trees and hedges, until he could distinguish in the yellowish fog of dusk the avenue of trees leading up to the house. The dogs were not supposed to bark, and they did not bark. The estate manager would not be there at this hour, and he was not. He went up the three porch steps and entered. Through the blood galloping in his ears came the woman's words. First a blue parlor, then a gallery, then a carpeted stairway at the top. Two doors. No one in the first bedroom, no one in the second. The door of the salon, and then the knife in his hand. In the old days, Horton's Bay was a lumbering town. No one who lived in it was out of sound of the big saws in the mill by the lake. Then one year, there were no more logs to make lumber. The lumber schooners came into the bay and were loaded with the cut of the mill that stood stacked in the yard. All the piles of lumber were carried away. The big mill building had all its machinery that was removable taken out and hoisted on board one of the schooners by the men who had worked in the mill. The schooner moved out of the bay toward the open lake, carrying the two great saws, the traveling carriage that hurled the logs against the revolving circular saws, and all the rollers, wheels, belts, and iron piled on a whole deep load of lumber, its open hold covered with canvas and lashed tight. The sails of the schooner filled and it moved out into the open lake, carrying with it everything that had made the mill a mill in Horton's Bay a town. The one-story bunkhouse, the eating house, the company store, the mill offices, and the big mill itself stood deserted in the acres of sawdust that covered the swampy meadow by the shore of the bay. Ten years later there was nothing of the mill left except the broken white limestone of its foundation showing through the swampy second growth as Nick and Marjorie rowed along the shore. They were trolling along the edge of the channel bank where the bottom dropped off suddenly from sandy shallows to twelve feet of dark water. They were trolling on their way to set night lines for rainbow trout. There's our old ruin, Nick Marjorie said. Nick Rowing looked at the white stone and the green tree. There it is, he said. Can you remember when it was a mill, Mar Marjorie asked. I can just remember, Nick. Nick said nothing. They rode on, out of sight of the mill, following the shoreline. Then Nick cut across the bay. They aren't striking, he said. No, Marjorie said. She was intent on the rod all the time they trolled. Even when she talked, she loved to fish. She loved to fish with Nick. Closing beside the boat, a big trout broke the surface of the water. Nick pulled hard on one oar so the boat would turn and the bait, spinning far behind, would pass where the trout was feeding. All the trout's back came up out of the water. The minnows jumped wildly. They sprinkled the surface like a handful of shot thrown in the water. Another trout broke water, feeding on the other side of the boat. They're feeding, Marjorie said, but they won't strike, Nick said. He rowed the boat around to troll past both the feeding fish and headed it for the point. Marjorie did not 
not reel in until the boat touched the shore. They pulled the boat up the beach, and Nick lifted out a pail of live perch. The perch swam in the water pail. Nick caught three of them with his hands and cut their heads off and skinned them while Marjorie chased with her hands in the bucket. Finally caught a perch, cut its head off and skinned it. Nick looked at her fish. You don't want to take that ventral fin out, he said. It'll be alright for bait, but it's better with the ventral fin in. He hooked each of the skinned perch through the tail. There were two hooks attached to a leader on each rod. Then Marjorie rode the boat out over the channel bank, holding the line in her teeth and looking toward Nick, who stood on the shore, holding the rod and letting the line run out from the reel. That's about right, he called. Should I let it drop? Marjorie called back, holding the line in her hand. Sure, let it go. Marjorie dropped the line overboard and watched the bait go down through the water. She came in with the boat and ran the second line out the same way. Each time, Nick set a heavy slab of driftwood across the butt of the rod to hold it and saw it and propped it up in an angle with a small slab. He reeled in the slack line so the line ran taut out to where the bait rested on the sandy floor of the channel and set the click on the reel. Then a trout feeding on the bottom took the bait it would run with, taking line out of the reel in a rush and making the reel sling with the click on. Marjorie rode up the point a little way so she would not disturb the line. She pulled hard on the oars and the boat went up the beach. Little waves came in with it. Marjorie stepped out on the boat and Nick pulled the boat, the boat high up on the beach. What's the matter, Nick? Marjorie asked. I don't no, Nick said, getting wood for a fire. They made a fire with driftwood. Marjorie went to the boat and brought a blanket. The evening breeze blew the smoke toward the point, so Marjorie spread the blanket out between the fire and the lake. Marjorie sat on the blanket with her back to the fire and waited for Nick. He came over and sat down beside her on the blanket. In back of them there was a close second growth timber of the point and in front was the bay with the mouth of Horton's Creek. It was not quite dark. The firelight went as far as the water. They could both see the two steel rods at an angle over the dark water. The fire glinted on the reels. Marjorie unpacked the basket of supper. I don't feel like eating, said Nick. Come on and eat, Nick. Alright. They ate without talking and watched the two rods and the fire light in the water. There's going to be a moon tonight, said Nick. He looked across the bay to the hills that were beginning to sharpen against the sky. Beyond the hills, he knew the moon was coming up. I know it, Marjorie said happily. You know everything, Nick said. Oh, Nick, please cut it out. Please don't be that way. I can't help it, Nick said. You do. You know everything. That's the trouble. You know you do. Marjorie did not say anything. I've taught you everything. You know you do. I've taught you everything. You know you do. What don't you know anyway? Oh, shut up, Marjorie said. There comes the moon. They sat on the blanket without touching each other and watched the moon rise. You don't have to... It was quite by accident I discovered this incredible invasion of Earth by life forms from another planet. As yet, I haven't done anything about it. I can't think of anything to do. I wrote to the government, and they sent back a pamphlet on the repair and maintenance of frame houses. Anyhow, the whole thing is known. I'm not the first to discover it. Maybe it's even under control. I was sitting in my easy chair, idly turning the pages of a paperback book someone had left on the bus, when I came across the reference that first put me on the trail. For a moment I didn't respond. It took some time for the full import to sink in. After I'd comprehended, it seemed odd I hadn't noticed it right away. 
The reference was clearly to a non-human species of incredible property, not indigenous to Earth, a species I hastened to point out customarily masquerading as ordinary human beings. Their disguise, however, became transparent in the face of the following observations by the author. It was at once obvious the author knew everything, knew everything, and was taking it in his stride. The line, and I tremble remembering it even now, read, his eyes slowly roved about the room. Vague chills assailed me, and I tried to picture the eyes. Did they roll like dimes? The passage indicated not. They seemed to move through the air, not over the surface, rather rapidly. Apparently no one in the story was surprised. That's what tipped me off. No sign of amazement at such an outrageous thing. Later the matter was amplified. His eyes moved from person to person. There it was in a nutshell. The eyes had clearly come apart from the rest of him and were on their own. My heart pounded and my breath choked in my windpipe. I had stumbled on an accidental mention of a totally unfamiliar race, obviously non-terrestrial. Yet to the characters in the book it was perfectly natural, which suggested the belonging to the same species. And the author? A slow suspicion burned in my mind. The author was taking it rather too easily in his stride. Evidently, he felt this was quite a usual thing. He made absolutely no attempt to conceal his knowledge. The story continued. Presently, his eyes fastened on Julia. Julia, being a lady, had at least the breeding to feel indignant. She is described as blushing and knitting her brows angrily. At this I sighed with relief. They weren't all non-terrestrials, the narrative continues. Slowly, calmly, his eyes examined every inch of her. Great Scott, but here the girl turned and stomped off and the matter ended. I lay back in my chair, gasping with horror. My wife and family regarded me in wonder. What's wrong, dear? my wife asked. I couldn't tell her. Knowledge like this was too much for the ordinary run-of-the-mill person. I had to keep it to myself. Nothing. I gasped. I leaped up, snatched the book, and hurried out the room. In the garage, I continued reading. There was more. Trembling. I read the next revealing passage. He put his arm around Julia. Presently she asked him if he would remove his arm. He immediately did so with a smile. It's not said what was done with the arm after the fellow had removed it. Maybe it was left standing upright in the corner. Maybe it was thrown away. I don't care. In any case, the full meaning was there, staring me right in the face. Here was a race of creatures capable of removing portions of their anatomy at will. Eyes, arms, and maybe more. Without batting an eyelash, my knowledge of biology came in handy. At this point, obviously they were simple beings, unicellular, some sort of primitive single-celled things, beings no more developed than starfish. Starfish can do the same thing, you know. I read on and came to the incredible revelation, tossed off coolly by the author without the faintest tremor. Outside the movie theater, we split up. Part of us went inside, part over to the cafe for dinner. Binary fission, obviously. Splitting in half and forming two entities. Probably each lower half went to the cafe, it being farther. And the upper halves to the movies. I read on, hands shaking. I'd really stumbled onto something here. My mind reeled as I made out the passage. I'm afraid there's no doubt about it. Poor Bibney had lost his head again, which was followed by, and Bob says he has utterly no guts, yet Bibney got around as well as the next person. The next person, however, was just as strange. He was soon described as totally lacking in brains. There was no doubt of the thing in the next passage. Julia, whom I had thought to be the one normal person, reveals herself as also being an alien life form similar to the rest. Quite deliberately, Julia had given her heart to the young man. 
It didn't relate what the final disposition of the organ was, but I didn't really care. It was evident Julia had gone right on living in her usual manner, like all the others in the book, without heart, arms, eyes, brains, viscera, dividing up in two people when the occasion demanded without a qualm. Thereupon she gave him her hand. I sickened. The rascal now had her hand as well as her heart. I shuddered to think what he's done with him. By this time, he took her arm. Not content to wait, he had to start dismantling her on his own. Flushing crimson, I slammed the book shut and leaped to my feet, but not in time to escape one last reference to those carefree bits of anatomy whose travel had originally thrown me on the track. Her eyes followed him all the way down the road and across the meadow. I rushed from the garage back inside the warm house, as if the accursed things were following me. My wife and children were playing Monopoly in the kitchen. I joined them and played with frantic fervor, brow feverish, teeth chattering. I had had enough of the thing. I want to hear no more about it. Let them come on. Let them invade Earth. I don't want to get mixed up in it. I have absolutely no stomach for it. I should certainly do it, said Sherlock Holmes. I started at the interruption, for my companion had been eating his breakfast, with his intention entirely centered upon the paper which was propped up by the coffee pot. Now I looked across at him to find his eyes fastened upon me, with half-amused, half-questioning expression, which he usually assumed when he felt he made an intellectual point. Do what, I asked. He smiled as he took his slipper from the mantelpiece and drew from it enough shag tobacco to fill the old clay pipe with which he inv invariably rounded off his breakfast. A most characteristic question of yours, Watson, said he. You will not, I am sure, be offended if I say that any reputation for sharpness which I may possess has been entirely gained by the admirable foil which you have made for me. Have I not heard of debutantes who have insisted upon plainness in their chaperones? There is a certain analogy. Our long companionship in the Baker Street rooms had left us on those easy terms of intimacy when much may be said without offense. And yet I acknowledge that I was nettled at his remark. I may be very obtuse, said I, but I confess that I am unable to see how you have managed to know that I was asked to help in the Edinburgh University Bazaar precisely. The letter has only just come to hand, and I have not spoken to you since. In spite of that, said Holmes, leaning back in his chair and putting his fingertips together, I would even venture to suggest that the object of the bazaar is to enlarge the university cricket field. I looked at him in such bewilderment that he vibrated with silent laughter. The fact is, my dear Watson, that you are an excellent subject, said he. You are never blasé. You respond instantly to any stimulus. Your mental process may be slow, but they are never obscure, and I found during breakfast that you were easier reading than the leader in the times in front of me. I should be glad to know how you arrived at your conclusion, said I. I fear that my good nature in giving explanations has seriously compromised my reputation, said Holmes, but in this case the train of reasoning is based upon such obvious fact that no credit can be claimed for it. You entered the room with a thoughtful expression, the expression of a man who was debating some point in his mind. In your hand you held a solitary letter. Last night you retired in the best of spirits, so it was clear that it was this letter in your hand which caused the change in you. This is obvious. It is all obvious when it is explained to you. 
I naturally asked myself what the letter could contain that might have this effect upon you. As you walked, you held the flap side of the envelope towards me, and I saw upon it the same shield-shaped device which I have observed upon your old college cricket cap. It was clear then that the request came from Edinburgh University, or, for some, or from sub, some club connected with the university. When you reached the table, you laid down the letter beside your plate, with the address uppermost, and you walked over to look at the framed photograph upon the left of the mantelpiece. It amazed me to see the accuracy with which he observed my movements. What next? I asked. I began by glancing at the address, and I could tell, even at the distance of six feet, that it was an unofficial communication. This I gathered from the use of the word doctor upon the address, to which, as a bachelor of medicine, you have no legal claim. I knew that, that university officials are pedantic in their correct use of titles, and I was thus enabled to say, with certainty, that your letter was unofficial. When on your return to the table, you turned over your letter and allowed me to perceive that the enclosure was a printed one. The idea of a bazaar first occurred to me. I had already weighed the possibility of it being a political communication, but this seemed improbable in the present stagnant conditions of politics. When you returned to the table, your face still retained its expression, and it was evident that your examination of the photograph had not changed the current of your thoughts. In that case, it must itself bear upon the subject in question. I turned my attention to the photograph, therefore, and I saw it at once, that it consisted of yourself as a member of the Edinburgh University Eleven, with the pavilion and cricket field in the background. My small experience of cricket clubs has taught me that, next to churches and cavalry and signs, they are the most debt-laden things upon earth. When upon your return to the table, I saw... You take out your pencil and draw lines upon the envelope. I was convinced that you were endeavoring to realize some projected improvement, which was to be brought about by a bazaar. Your face still showed some indecision, so that I was able to break in upon you with my advice that you should assist in so good an object. I could not help smiling at the extreme simplicity of his explanation. Of course it was as easy as possible, said I. My remark appeared to nettle him. I may add, said he, that the particular help which you have been asked to give was that you should write in their album, and that you have already made up your mind that the present incident will be the subject of your article. But how, I cried, it is as easy as possible, said he, and I leave its solution to your own ingenuity. In the meantime, he added, raising his paper, you will excuse me. If I return to this very interesting art article upon the trees of Cremona, and the exact reasons for the preeminence in the manufacture of violins. It is one of those small outlying problems to which I am sometimes tempted to direct my attention. The fun they had. Margie even wrote about it that night in her diary. On the page headed May 17th, 2155, she wrote, Today Tommy found a real book. It was a very old book. Margie's grandfather once said that when he was a little boy, his grandfather told him that there was a time when all stories were printed on paper. They turned the pages, which were yellow and crankily, and it was awfully funny to read words that stood still instead of moving the way they were supposed to on a screen. 
And then when they turned back to the page before, it had the same words on it that it had had when they read it the first time. Gee, said Tommy, what a waste. When you're through with the book, you just throw it away, I guess. Our television screen must have had a million books on it, and it's good for plenty more. I wouldn't throw it away. Same with mine, said Margie. She was eleven and hadn't seen as many telebooks as Tommy had. He was thirteen. She said, Where did you find it? In my house, he pointed without looking, because he was busy reading. In the attic. What's it about? School. Margie was scornful. School? What's there to write about school? I hate school. Margie had always hated school, but now she hated it more than ever. The mechanical teacher had been giving her test after test in geography, and she had been doing worse and worse until her mother had shaken her head sorrowfully and sent for the county inspector. He was a round little man with a red face and a whole box of tools with dials and wires. He smiled at her and gave her an apple, then took the teacher apart. Margie had hoped he wouldn't know how to put it back together, but he knew how all right, and after an hour or so, there it was again, large and black and ugly with a big screen on it, which all the lessons were shown, and the questions were asked that wasn't so bad. The part she hated most was the slot where she had to put homework and test papers. She always had to write them out in a punch code. They made her learn when she was six years old. And the, man, and the mechanical teacher calculated the mark in no time. The inspector had smiled after he finished and patted her head. He said to her mother, It's not the little girl's fault, Miss Jones. I think the geography sector was geared a little too quick. Those things happen sometimes. I've slowed it up to an average ten-year level. Actually, the overall pattern of her progress is quite satisfactory. And he patted Margie's head again. Margie was disappointed. She had been hoping they would take the teacher away altogether. They had once taken Tommy's teacher away for nearly a month because the history sector had blanked out completely. So she said to Tommy, Why would anyone write about school? Tommy looked at her with very superior eyes. Because it's not our kind of school, stupid. This is the old kind of school that they had hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Margie was hurt. Well, I don't know what kind of school they had that time ago, she said. She read the book over his shoulder for a while and then said, Anyway, they had a teacher, sure. They had a teacher. But it wasn't a regular teacher. It was a man. A man? How could a man be a teacher? Well, he just told the boys and girls things and gave them homework and asked them questions. A man isn't smart enough. Sure he is. My father knows as much as my teacher. He can't. A man can't know as much as a teacher. He knows almost as much as I, betcha. Margie wasn't prepared to dispute that. She said, I wouldn't want a strange man in my house to teach me. Tommy screamed with laughter. You don't know much, Margie. The teachers didn't live in the house. They had a special building, and all the kids went there. And all the kids learned the same thing. 
Sure, if they were the same age, but my mother says a teacher has to be adjusted to fit the mind of each boy and girl it teaches, and that each kid has to be taught differently. Just the same, they didn't do it that way then. If you don't like it, you don't have to read the book. I didn't say I didn't like it, Margie said quickly. She wanted to read about those funny schools. They weren't even half finished when Margie's mother called. Margie's school. Margie looked up. Not yet, Mama. Now, said Miss Jones, and it's probably time for Tommy, too. Margie said to Tommy, Can I read the book some more with you after school? The little town straggling up the hill was bright with colored Christmas lights, but George Pratt did not see them. He was leaning over the railing of the iron bridge, staring down moodily at the black water. The current eddied and swirled like liquid glass. Occasionally a bit of ice detached from the shore would go gliding downstream to be swallowed up in the shadows under the bridge. The water looked paralyzingly cold. George wondered how long a man could stay alive. The glassy blackness had a strange hypnotic effect on him. He leaned still farther over the railing. I wouldn't do that if I were a quiet voice beside said. George turned resentfully to a little man he had never seen before. Before. He was stout, well past middle age, and his round cheeks pink in the winter air, as though they had just been shaved. Wouldn't do what, George asked sullenly. What you were thinking of doing. How do you know what I was thinking? Oh, we make it our business to know a lot of the stranger said easily. George wondered what the man's business was. He was a most unremarkable little person, the sort you would pass in a crowd and never notice, unless you saw his bright blue eyes, that is. You couldn't forget them, for they were the kindest, sharpest eyes you ever saw. Nothing else about him was noteworthy. He wore a moth-eaten old fur cap and a shabby overcoat that was stretched tightly across his paunchy belly. He was carrying a small black satchel. It wasn't a doctor's bag, too large for that, and not the right shape. It was a salesman's sample kit. George decided distastefully that the fellow was probably some sort of peddler, the kind who would go around poking his sharp little nose into other people's affairs. Looks like snow, doesn't it, the stranger said, glancing up appraisingly at the overcast sky. It'll be nice to have a white Christmas. They're getting scarce these days. So are a lot of things. He turned to face George squarely. You all right now? Of course I'm all right. What made you think I was? George fell silent. Before the stranger's quiet gaze, the little man shook his head. You know you shouldn't think of such things. And on Christmas Eve of all time, you gotta consider Mary. And your mother too. George opened his mouth to ask how the stranger could know his wife's name. But the fellow anticipated him. Don't ask me how I know such things. It's my business to know. That's why I came along this way tonight. Luckily I did, too. He glanced down at the dark water and shuddered. Well, if you know so much about me, George said, give me just one good reason why I should be alive. The little man made a queer chuckling sound. Come, come, it can't be that bad. You've got your job at the bank, and Mary, and the kids. You're healthy, and young, and, and sick of everything, George cried. I'm stuck here in this mud hole for life, the same dull work day after day. Other men are leading exciting lives, but I, well, 
I'm just a small town bank clerk that even the army didn't want. I never did anything really useful or interesting, and it looks as if I never will. I might as just as well be dead. I might better be dead. Sometimes I wish I were. In fact, I wish I'd never been born. The little man stood looking at him in the growing darkness. What was that you said? He asked softly. I said I wish I'd never been born, George repeated firmly. And I mean it, too. The stranger's pink cheeks glowed with excitement. Why, that's wonderful. You've solved everything. I was afraid you were going to give me some trouble, but now you've got the solution yourself. You'd wish you'd never been born? All right, okay. You haven't. What do you mean, George growled? You haven't been born, just that. No one here knows you? You have no responsibilities, no job, no wife, no children? Why, you haven't even a mother. You couldn't have, of course. All of your troubles are over. Your wish has been granted officially. Nuts, George snorted and turned away. The stranger ran after him and caught him by the arm. You'd better take this with you, he said, holding out his satchel. It'll open a lot of doors that might otherwise be slammed in your face. What doors and whose face, George scoffed. I know everybody in this town. And besides, I'd like to see anybody slam a door in my face. Yes, I know, the little man said patiently. But take this anyway. It can't do any harm, and it may help. He opened the satchel and displayed a number of brushes. You'd be surprised how useful these brushes can be as introduction, especially the free one. These, I mean. He hauled out a plain little hairbrush. I'll show you how to use it. He thrust the satchel into George's reluctant hand and began. When the lady of the house comes to the door, you give her this, and then talk fast. Say, good evening, madam. I'm from the World Cleaning Company, and I want to present with you this handsome and useful brush. Absolutely free. No obligation to purchase anything at all. After that, of course, it's a cinch. Now you try. He forced the brush into George's hand. George promptly dropped the brush into the satchel and fumbled with the catch, finally closing with an angry snap. Here, he said, and then stopped abruptly, for there was no one in sight. The little stranger must have slipped away in the bushes growing along the river bank, George thought. He certainly wasn't going to play hide-and-seek with them. It was nearly dark and getting colder every minute. He shivered and turned up his coat collar. The street lights had been turned on, and Christmas candles in the windows glowed soft. The little town looked remarkably cheerful. After all, the place you grew up in was the one spot on earth where you could really feel at home. George felt a sudden burst of affection, even for the crotchety old Hank Biddle, whose house he was past. He remembered the quarrel he had had when his car had scraped a piece of bark out of Hank's big maple tree. George looked up at the vast spread of leafless branches towering over him in the darkness. The tree must have been growing there since Indian time. He felt a sudden twinge of guilt for the damage he had done. He had never stopped to inspect the wound, for he was ordinarily afraid to have Hank catch him even looking at the tree. Now he stepped out boldly into the roadway to examine the huge trunk. Hank must have repaired the scar or painted it over, for there was no sign of it. George struck a match and bent down to look more closely. He straightened up with an odd sinking feeling. In his stomach, there wasn't any scar. The bark was smooth and undamaged. He remembered what the little man at the bridge had said. It was all nonsense, of course, but the non-existent scar bothered. When he reached the bank, he saw there was 
was something wrong. The building was dark and he knew he had turned the vault light on. He noticed too that someone had left the window shades up. He ran around to the front and there was a battered old sign fastened to the door. George could just make out the word, for rent or sale. Apply, James Silva Realist. Perhaps it was some of the boy's tricks, he thought wildly. Then he saw a pile of ancient leaves and tattered newspapers in the bank's ordinarily immaculate doorway. And the windows looked as though they hadn't been washed in years. A light was still burning across the street in Jim Silva's office. George dashed over to him and tore the door open. Jim looked up at him from his ledger book in surprise. What can I do for you, young man? He said in a polite voice. He reserved for potential customers. The bank, George said breathlessly. What's the matter with it? The old bank building, Jim Silva turned around and looked out the window. Nothing that I can see of. Wouldn't like to rent or buy it, would you? You mean it's out of business? Ah, for a good ten years. Went bust strange around these parts, ain't you? George sagged against the wall. I was here some time ago, he said weakly. The bank was all right then. I even knew some of the people who worked there. Didn't you know a feller named Marty Jenkins? Did you? Marty Jenkins? Why, he... George was about to say that Marty had never worked in the bank. He couldn't have, in fact, for when they had both left school, they had applied for a job, that, and George had gotten it. But now, of course, things were different. You would have to be careful. No, I didn't know him, he said slowly. Not really that. Then maybe you heard how he skipped out with $50,000. That's why the bank went broke. Pretty near ruined everybody around here. Silva was looking at him sharply. I was hoping for a minute maybe you'd know where he is. I lost plenty in that crash myself. We'd like to get our hands on Marty Jenkins. Didn't he have a brother? Seems to me he had a brother named Arthur. Art? Oh, sure. But he's all right. He didn't know where his brother went. It had a terrible effect on him, too. Took to the drink he did. It's too bad. And hard on his wife. He married a nice girl. George felt the sinking feeling in his stomach. Who did he marry? He demanded hoarsely. Both he and Art had courted Mary. Girl named Mary Thatcher, Silva said cheerfully. She lives up on the hill just this side of the church. Hey, where are you going? But George had bolted out of the office. He ran past the empty bank building and turned up the hill. For a moment, he thought he was going straight to Mary. The house next to the church had been given them by her father as a wedding present. Naturally, Art Jenkins would have gotten it if he had married Mary. George wondered whether they had any children. Then he knew he couldn't face me. Not yet, any. He decided to visit his parents and find out more about it. There were candles burning in the window of the little weather-beaten house beside and a Christmas wreath was hanging on the glass panel on the front door. George raised the gate latch with a loud click. A dark shape on the porch jumped up and began to growl. Then it hurled itself down the steps, barking ferociously. Brownie, you old fool, stop that. Don't you know me? But the dog advanced menacingly and drove him back behind the gate. The porch light snapped on and George's father stepped outside to call the dog off. The barking subsided to a low, angry growl. His father held the dog by the collar while George cautiously walked past. He could see that his father did not know him. Is the lady of the house in, he asked. His father waved, waved toward the door. Go on in, he said cordially. I'll chain this dog up. She can be mean with strangers. His mother, who was waiting in the hallway, obviously did not recognize. George opened his sample, grabbed the first brush that came to hand. Good evening, ma'am, he said politely. I'm from the World Cleaning Company. We're giving out a free sample brush. I thought you might like to have one. No obligation, no obligation at all. His, his voice faltered. His mother smiled at his awkwardness. I suppose you'll want to sell me something. I'm not really sure I need any. No, I'm not selling anything, he assured her. The regular salesman will be around in a few days. This is just, well, just a Christmas present from the company. How nice. People never gave away such good brushes before. 
This is a special offer, he said. His father entered the hall and closed the door. Won't you come in for a while and sit down with us? His mother said. You must be tired walking somewhere. Thank you, ma'am. I don't mind if I do. He entered the little parlor and put his bag down. The room looked different, although he could not figure out why. I used to know this town pretty well, he used to make comments. He knew of some of the townspeople. I remembered a girl named Mary Thatcher. She married Art Jenkins there. You must know of the course, his mother said. We know Mary well. Any children? He asked casually. Two, a boy and a girl. George sighed audibly. My, you must be tired, isn't it? Perhaps I can get you a cup of tea. No, ma'am, don't bother, he said. I'll be having supper. So he looked around the little parlor, trying to find out why it looked different. Over the mantelpiece hung a framed photo, which had been taken on his kid brother Harry's 16th birthday. He remembered how they had gone to Potter's studio to photograph together. There was something queer about the picture. It showed only one figure, Harry. That's your son, he asked. His mother's face clouded. She nodded, but said nothing. I think I met him, too. George said hesitantly. His name's Harry, isn't it? His mother turned away, making a strange choking noise in her throat. Her husband put his arm clumsily around her shoulder. His voice, which was always mild and gentle, suddenly became harsh. You couldn't have met him, he said. He's been dead a long while. He was drowned the day that picture was taken. George's mind flew back to the long-ago August afternoon when he and Harry had visited Potter's studio. On their way home, they had gone swimming. Harry had been seized with a cramp. He remembered he had pulled him out of the water and had thought nothing of it. But suppose he hadn't been there. I'm sorry, he said miserably. I guess I'd better go. I hope you like the brush, and I wish you both a very Merry Christmas. There he had put his foot in it again, wishing them a Merry Christmas when they were thinking of dead son. Brownie tugged fiercely at her chain as George went down the porch steps and accompanied his departure with a hostile, rolling growl. He wanted desperately now to see Mary. He wasn't sure he could stand not being recognized by her, but he had to see her. The lights were on in the church, and the choir was making last-minute preparations preparations for Christmas vespers. The organ had been practicing holy night evening after evening until George had become thoroughly sick of it. But now the music almost tore his heart out. He stumbled blindly up the path to his own house. The lawn was untidy and the flower bushes he had kept carefully trimmed were neglected and badly sprouted. Art Jenkins could hardly be expected to care for such. When he knocked at the door, there was a long silence, followed by the shout of a child. Then Mary came to the door. At the sight of her, George's voice almost failed him. Merry Christmas, he managed to say at last. His hand shook as he tried to open the satchel. When George entered the living room, unhappy as he was, he could not help noticing the secret grin that the two high-priced blue sofa they had quarreled over was there. Evidently, Mary had gone through the same thing with Art Jenkins and had won the argument with him, too. George got his satchel open. One of the brushes had a bright blue handle and very colored bristles. It was obviously a brush not intended to be given away, but George didn't care. He handed it to Mary. This would be fine for your sofa, he said. My, that's a pretty brush. You're giving it away free? He nodded solemnly. Special introductory offer. One way for the company to keep excess profit. Share them with its friends. She stroked the sofa gently with the brush, smoothing out the velvet nap. It is a nice brush. Thank you, I. There was a sudden scream from the kitchen, and two small children rushed in. A little homely-faced girl flung herself into her mother's arms, sobbing loudly as a boy of seven came running after her, snapping a toy pistol at her. Mommy, she won't die, he yelled. I shot her a hundred times, and she won't die. He looked 
looks just like Art Jenkins, George thought. Acts like him, too. The boy suddenly turns his attention to him. Who are you? He demanded belligerently. He pointed his pistol at George and pulled the trigger. You're dead, he cried. You're dead. Why don't you fall down and die? There was a heavy step on the porch. The boy looked frightened and backed away. George saw Mary glance apprehensively at the door. Art Jenkins came in. He stood for a moment in the doorway, clinging to the knob for support. His eyes were glazed and his face was very red. Who's this? He demanded thickly. He's a brush salesman, said Mary. He gave me this brush. Brush salesman, sneered. Tell him to get out of here. We don't want no brush. Art hiccuped violently and lurched across the room sofa, where he sat down suddenly. And we don't want no brush salesman either. George looked despairingly at Mary. Her eyes were begging him to go. Art had lifted his feet up on the sofa and was sprawling out, muttering unkind things about brush sale. George went to the door, followed by Art's son, who kept snapping the pistol at him and saying, You're dead. You're dead. Perhaps the boy was right, she thought when he reached the porch. Maybe he was dead. Or maybe this was all a bad dream from which he might eventually awake. He wanted to find the little man on the bridge again and try to persuade him to cancel the whole deal. He hurried down the hill and broke into a run. When he neared the river, George was relieved to see the little stranger standing on the bridge. I've had enough, he gasped. Get me out of this. You gotta get me out of this. Get me out of this. You got me into this? The stranger raised his eyebrows. I got you. I like that. You were granted your wish. You got everything you asked for. You're the freest man on earth. You have no ties. You can go anywhere. Do anything. What more can you possibly all were crowding around M. Bermutier, the judge, who was giving his opinion about the St. Cloud mystery. For a month, this inexplicable crime had been the talk of Paris. Nobody could make head or tail of it. M. Bermutier, standing with his back to the fireplace, was talking, citing the evidence, discussing the various theories, but arriving at no conclusion. Some women had risen in order to get nearer to him, and were standing with their eyes fastened on the clean-shaven face of the judge, who was saying such weighty things. They were shaking and trembling, moved by fear and curiosity, and by the eager and insatiable desire for the horrible which haunts the soul of every woman. One of them, paler than the others, said during a pause, It's terrible. It verges on the supernatural. The truth will never be known. The judge turned to her. True, madame. It is likely that the actual facts will never be discovered. As for the word supernatural, which you have just used, it has nothing to do with the matter. We are in the presence of very cleverly conceived and executed crime, so well enshrouded in mystery that we cannot disentangle it from the involved circumstances which surround it. But once I had to take charge of an affair in which the uncanny seemed to play a part. In fact, the case became so confused that it had to be given up. Several women exclaimed at once, Oh, tell us about it. M. Bermutier smiled in a dignified manner, as a judge should, and went on. Do not think, however, that I, for one minute, ascribed anything in the case to supernatural influences. I believe only in normal causes. But if instead of using the word supernatural to express what we do not understand, we were simply to make use of the word inexplicable, it would be much better. At any rate, in the affair of which I am about to tell you, it is especially the surrounding, preliminary circumstances which impressed me. Here are the facts. I was at that time a judge at Ahasio, a little white city on the edge of a bay, which is surrounded by high mountains. The majority of the cases which came up before me concerned vendettas. There are some that are superb, dramatic, ferocious, heroic. We find they're the most beautiful causes for revenge of which one could dream enmities hundreds of years old, 
quieted for a time but never extinguished. Abominable stratagems, murders, becoming massacres, and almost deeds of glory. For two years I heard of nothing but the price of blood, of this terrible Corsican prejudice, which compels revenge for insults meted out to the offending person and all his descendants and relatives. I had seen old men, children, cousins murdered. My head was full of these stories. One day I learned that an Englishman had just hired a little villa at the end of the bay for several years. He had brought with him a French servant, who he had engaged on the way at Marcella's. Soon this peculiar person, living alone, only going out to hunt and fish, aroused a widespread interest. He never spoke to anyone, never went to the town, and every morning he would practice for an hour or so with his revolver and rifle. Legends were built up around him. It was said that he was some high personage fleeing from his fatherland for political reasons. Then it was affirmed that he was in hiding after having committed some abominable crime. Some particularly horrible circumstances were even mentioned. In my judicial position, I thought it necessary to get some information about this man, but it was impossible to learn anything. He called himself Sir John Rowell. I therefore had to be satisfied with watching him as closely as I could but I could see nothing suspicious about his actions. However, as rumors about him were growing and becoming more widespread, I decided to try to see this stranger myself, and I began to hunt reg regularly in the neighborhood of his grounds. For a long time, I watched without finding an opportunity. At last, it came to me in the shape of a partridge, which I shot and killed right in front of the Englishman. My dog fetched it for me, but taking the bird, I went at once to Sir John Rowell, and begging his pardon, asked him to accept it. He was a big man with red hair and beard, very tall, very broad, kind of calm and polite Hercules. He had nothing of the so-called British stiffness, and in a broad English accent he thanked me warmly for my attention. At the end of a month we had five or six conversations. One night at last, as I was passing before his door, I saw him in the garden, seated astride a chair, smoking his pipe. I bowed and he invited me to come in and have a glass of beer. I needed no urging. He received me with the most punticulous English courtesy, sang the praises of France and of Corsica, and declared that he was quite in love with this country. Then with great caution and under the guise of a vivid interest, I asked him a few questions about his life and his plans. He answered without embarrassment, telling me that he had traveled a great deal in Africa, in the Indies, in America. He added laughing, I had many adventures. Then I turned the conversation on hunting, and he gave me the most curious detail on hunting the hippopotamus, the tiger, the elephant, and even the gorilla. I said, are all these animals dangerous? He smiled. Oh no, man is the worst. And he laughed a good broad laugh, a wholesome laugh of a contented Englishman. I have also frequently been man hunting. Then he began to talk about weapons, and he invited me to come in and see different makes of guns. His parlor was draped in black, black silk embroidered in gold. Big yellow flowers, as, as brilliant as fire, were worked on the dark material. He said, It is a Japanese material, but in the middle of the widest panel a strange thing attracted my attention. A black object stood out against a square of red velvet. I went up to it. It was a hand, a human hand, not the clean white hand of a skeleton, but a dried black hand with yellow nails, the muscles exposed and traces of old blood on the bones, which were cut off as clean as though it had been chopped off with an axe near the middle of the forearm. Around the wrist, an enormous iron chain riveted and soldered to this unclean member, fastened it to the wall by a ring strong enough to hold an elephant in leash. I asked, what is that? The Englishman answered quietly, this is my best enemy. It comes from America too. 
The bones were severed by a sword and the skin cut off with a sharp stone and dried in the sun for a week. I touched these human remains, which must have belonged to a giant. The uncommonly long fingers were attached by enormous tendons, which still had pieces of skin hanging to them in places. His hand was terrible to see. It made one think of some savage vengeance. I said this, this man must have been very strong. The Englishman answered quietly, Yes, but I was stronger than he. I put on the chain to hold him. I thought that he was joking, I said. The chain is useless now. The hand won't run away. Sir John Rowell answered seriously. It always wants to go away. The chain is needed. I glanced at him quickly, questioning his face, and I asked myself, Is he an insane man or a practical joker? But his face remained inscrutable, calm and friendly. I turned to other subject and admired his rifles. However, I noticed that he kept three loaded revolvers in the room, as though constantly in fear of some attack. I paid him several calls, then I did not go any more. People had become used to his presence. Everybody had lost interest in him. A whole year rolled by. One morning, toward the end of November, my servant awoke me and announced that Sir John Rowell had been murdered during the night. Half an hour later, I entered the Englishman's house, together with the police commissioner and the captain of the gendarmes. The servant, bewildered and in despair, was crying before the door. At first, I suspected this man, but he was innocent. The guilty party could never be found. On entering Sir John's parlor, I noticed the body stretched out on its back in the middle of the room. His vest was torn. The sleeve of his jacket had been pulled off. Everything pointed to a violent struggle. The Englishman had been strangled. His face was black, swollen and frightful, and seemed to express a terrible fear. He held something between his teeth, and his neck pierced by five or six holes, which looked as though they had been made by some iron instrument was covered with blood. A physician joined us. He examined the finger marks on the neck for a long time, and then made his strange announcement. It looks as though he had been strangled by a skeleton. A cold chill seemed to run down my back, and I looked over to where I had formerly seen the terrible hand. It was no longer there. The chain was hanging down broken. I bent over the dead man, and in his contracted mouth, I found one of the fingers of this vanished hand, cut or rather sawed off by the teeth down to the second knuckle. Then the investigation began. Nothing could be discovered. No door, window, or piece of furniture had been forced. The two watchdogs had not been aroused from their sleep. Here, in a few words, is the testimony of the servant. For a month, his master had seemed excited. He had received many letters, which he would immediately burn. Often in a fit of passion, which approached madness, he had taken a switch and struck wildly at this dried hand riveted to the wall, which had disappeared. No one knows how. At the very hour of the crime, he would go to bed very late and carefully lock himself in. He always kept weapons within reach. Often at night, he would talk loudly as though he were quarreling with someone. That night, somehow, he had made no noise, and it was only on going to open the window that the servant had found Sir John murdered. He suspected no one. I communicated that I knew of the dead man to the judges and the public officials throughout the whole island. A minute investigation was carried on. Nothing could be found out. One night, about three months after the crime, I had a terrible nightmare. I seemed to see the horrible hand running over my curtains and walls like an immense scorpion or spider. Three times I awoke. Three times I went to sleep again. Three times I saw the hideous object galloping around my room and moving its fingers like legs. The following day, the hand was brought me, found in the cemetery on the grave of Sir John Rowell, who had been buried there. We had been unable to find his family. The first finger was missing. Ladies, there is my story. I know nothing more. The woman deeply stirred. One of them exclaimed, But that is neither a climax nor explanation. 
We will be unable to sleep unless you give us your opinion of what had occurred. The judge smiled severely. Oh, ladies, I shall certainly spoil your terrible dreams. I simply believe that the legitimate owner of the hand was not dead, but he came to get it with his remaining one. But I don't know how. It was a kind of vendetta. One of the women murdered. No, it can't be that. And the judge, still smiling, said, Didn't I tell you that my explanation would not satisfy you? Most terribly cold it was. It snowed. It was nearly quite dark, the last evening of the year. In this cold and darkness, there went along the street a poor little girl, bareheaded and with naked feet. When she left home, she had slippers on. It is true, but what was the good of that? They were very large slippers, which her mother had hitherto worn. So large were they, and the poor little thing lost them as she scuffled away across the street because of two carriages that rolled by dreadfully fast. One slipper was nowhere to be found. The other had been laid hold of by an urchin, and off he ran with it. He thought it would do capitally for a cradle when he some day or other should have children himself. So the little maiden walked on with her tiny naked feet that were quite red and blue from cold. She carried a quantity of matches in an old apron, and she held a bundle of them in her hand. Nobody had bought anything of her the whole live-long day. No one had given her a single farthing. She crept along, trembling with cold and hunger, a very picture of sorrow, the poor little thing. The flakes of snow covered her long, fair hair, which fell in beautiful curls around her neck. But of that, of course, she never once now thought. From all the windows, the candles were gleaming, and it smelt so deliciously of roast goose, for you know it was New Year's Eve. Yes, of that, she thought. In a corner formed by two houses, of which one advanced more than the other, she seated herself down and cowered together. Her little feet she had drawn close up to her, but she grew colder and colder, and to go home she did not venture, for she had not sold any matches, and could not bring a farthing of money. From her father she would certainly get blows, and at home it was too cold, for above her she had only the roof, through which the wind whistled even though the largest cracks were stopped up with straw and rags. Her little hands were almost numbed with cold. Oh, a match might afford her a world of comfort. She only dared take a single out of her bundle, draw it against the wall, and warm her fingers by it. She drew one out. How it blazed, how it burnt. It was a warm, bright flame like a candle, as she held her hands over it. It was a wonderful light. It seemed really to the little maiden as though she were sitting before a large iron stove with burnished brass feet and a brass ornament at top. The fire burned with such blessed influence it warmed so delightfully. The little girl had already stretched out her feet to warm them too, but the small flame went out. The stove vanished. She had only the remains of the burnt-out match in her hand. She rubbed another against the wall. It burned brightly, and where the light fell on the wall, there the wall became transparent like a veil, so that she could see into the room. On the table was spread a snow-white tablecloth. Upon it was a splendid porcelain service, and the roast goose was steaming, famously with its stuffing of apple and dried plums. And what was still more capital to behold was the goose hopped down from the dish, reeled about on the floor with the knife and fork in its breast, till it came up to the poor little girl. When the match went out, and nothing but the thick, cold, damp wall was left behind, she lighted another match. Now there she was, sitting under the most magnificent Christmas tree. It was still larger and more decorated than the one she had seen to the glass door in the rich merchant's house. Thousands of lights were burning on the green branches, and galley-colored pictures, such as she had seen in the shop windows, looked down upon her. The little maiden stretched out her hands toward them. When the match went out, the lights on the Christmas tree rose higher and higher. 
You saw them now as stars in heaven. One fell down and formed a long trail of fire. Someone is just dead, said the little girl. For her old grandmother, the only person who had loved her, and who was now no more, had told her that when a star falls, a soul ascends to heaven. She drew another match against the wall. It was again light. And in the luster there stood the old grandmother, so bright and radiant, so mild, and with such an expression of love. Grandmother, cried the little one, oh, take me with you. You go away when the match burns out. You vanish like the warm stove, like, like the delicious roast goose, and like the magnificent Christmas tree. And she rubbed the whole bundle of matches quickly against the wall, for she wanted to be quite sure of keeping her grandmother near her. And the matches gave such a brilliant light that it was brighter than at noonday. Never formerly had the grandmother been so beautiful and so tall. She took the little maiden on her arm, and both flew in brightness, and in joy so high, so very high. And then above was neither cold, nor hunger, nor anxiety. They were with God. But in the corner, at the cold hour of dawn, sat the poor girl, with rosy cheeks, with a smiling mouth, leaning against the wall, frozen to death, on the last evening of the old year. Stiff and stark sat the girl there with her matches, of which one bundle had been burnt. She wanted to warm herself, people said. No one had the slightest suspicion of what beautiful things she had seen. No one even dreamed of the splendor in which, with her grandmother, she had entered the, the joys of a new year. The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny, with fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely, and the grass was richly green. The people of the village began to gather in the square, between the post office and the bank around ten o'clock. In some towns there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 20th. But in this village, where there were only about three hundred people, the whole lottery took less than two hours, so it could begin at ten o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. The children assembled first, of course. School was recently over for the summer. The feeling of liberty sat uneasily on most of them. They tended to gather together quietly for a while, before they broke into boisterous play, and their talk was still of the classroom and the teacher of books and reprimand. Bobby Martin had already stuffed his pockets full of stones, and the other boys soon followed his example, selecting the smoothest and roundest stones. Bobby and Harry Jones and Dickie Delacroix, the villagers pronounced his name Delacroix, eventually made a great pile of stones in one corner of the square and guarded it against the raids of the other boys. The girls stood aside, talking among themselves, looking over their shoulders at the boys, and the very small children rolled in their dust or clung to the hands of their older brothers or sisters. Soon the men began to gather, surveying their own children, speaking of planting and rain, tractors and taxes. They stood together, away from the pile of stones in the corner, and their jokes were quiet, and they smiled rather than laughed. The women wearing faded house dresses and sweaters came shortly after their menfolk. They greeted one another and exchanged bits of gossip as they went to join their husbands. Soon the women standing by their husbands began to call to their children, and the children came reluctantly, having to be called four or five times. Bobby Martin ducked under his mother's grasping hand and ran, laughing, back up to the pile of stones. His father spoke up sharply, and Bobby came quickly back. Bobby came quickly and took his place between his father and his eldest brother. 
the lottery was conducted as were the square dances the teen club the halloween program by mr summers who had time and energy to devote to civic activities he was a round-faced jovial man and he ran the coal business and people were sorry for him because he had no children and his wife was a scold when he arrived in the square carrying the black wooden box there was a murmur of conversation among the villagers and he waved and called a little late today folks the postmaster mr graves followed him carrying a three-legged stool and the stool was put in the center of the square and mr summers set the black box down on it the villagers kept their distance leaving a space between themselves and the stool when mr summers said some of you fellows want to give me a hand there was a hesitation before two men mr martin and his eldest son baxter came forward to hold the box steady on the stool while mr summers stirred up the papers inside it the original paraphernalia for the lottery had been lost long ago and the black box now resting on the stool had been put into use even before old man warner the oldest man in town was born mr summers spoke frequently to the villagers about making a new box but no one liked to upset even as much tradition as was represented by the black box there was a story that the present box had been made with some piece of the boxes that had preceded it the one that had been constructed when the first people settled down to make a village here every year after the lottery mr summers began talking again about a new box but every year the subject was allowed to fade off without anything being done the black box grew shabbier each year by now it was no longer completely black but splintered badly along one side to show the original wood color and in some places faded or stained mr martin and his eldest son baxter held the black box securely on the stool until mr summers had stirred the papers thoroughly with his hand because so much of the ritual had been forgotten or discarded mr summers had been successful in having slips of paper substituted for the chips of wood that had been used for generations chips of wood mr summers had argued had been all very well when the village was tiny but now that the population had more than three hundred and likely to keep on growing it was necessary to use something that would fit more easily into the black box the night before the lottery mr summers and mr graves made up the slips of paper and put them in the box and it was then taken to the safe of mr summers coal company and locked up until mr summers was ready to take it to the square the next morning the rest of the year the box was, was put away sometimes one place sometimes another it had spent one year in mr graves barn and another year underfoot in the post office and sometimes it was set it was set on a shelf in the martin grocery and left there there was a great deal of fussing to be done before mr summers declared the lottery open there were the lists make up of heads of families heads of households in each family members of each household in each family there was the proper swearing-in of mr summers by the postmaster as the official of the lottery at one time some people remembered there had been a recital of some sort performed by the official of the lottery a perfunctory tuneless chant that had been rattled off duly each year some people believed that the official of, of the lottery used, used to stand just so when he said or sang it others believed that he was supposed to walk among the people but years and years ago this part of the ritual had been allowed to lapse there had been also a ritual salute which the official of the lottery had had to use in addressing each person who came up to draw from the box but this also had changed with time until now it was felt unnecessary 
only for the official to speak to each person approaching. Mr. Summers was very good at all this, in his clean white shirt and blue jeans, with one hand resting carelessly on the black box. He seemed very proper and important as he talked interminably to Mr. Graves and the Martins, just as Mr. Summers finally left off talking and turned to the assembled villagers. Miss Hutchinson came hurriedly along the path to the square, her sweater thrown over her shoulders and slid into place in the back of the crowd. Clean forgot what day it was, she said to Miss Delacroix, who stood next to her, and they both laughed softly. Thought my old man was out back stacking wood, Miss Hutchinson went on. Then I looked out the window and the kids were gone. Then I remembered it was the 27th and came a-running. She dried her hands on her apron and Miss Delacroix said, You're in time, though. They're still talking away up there. Miss Hutchinson craned her neck to see through the woods and found her husband and children standing near the front. She tapped Miss Delacroix on the arm as a farewell and began to make her way through the crowd. The people separated good-humoredly to let her through. Two or three people said in voices just loud enough to be heard across the crowd, Here comes your Mrs. Hutchinson. And Bill, she made it after all. Miss Hutchinson reached her husband, and Mr. Summers, who had been waiting, said cheerfully, Thought we were going to have to get on without you, Tessie. Miss Hutchinson said, grinning, Wouldn't have me leave my dishes in the sink, now would you, Joe? And soft laughter rang through the crowd, and the people stirred back into position after Miss Hutchinson's arrival. Well now, Mr. Summers said soberly, Guess we better get started. Get this over with so as we can go back to work. Anybody ain't here? Dunbar, several people said. Dunbar. Dunbar. Mr. Summers consulted his list. Clyde Dunbar, he said. That's right. He's broke his leg, hasn't he? Who's drawing for him? Me, I guess, a woman said. And Mr. Summers turned to look at her. Wife draws for her husband, Mr. Summers said. Don't you have a grown boy to do it for you, Janie? Although Mr. Summers and everyone in the village knew the answer perfectly well, it was the business of the official of the lottery to ask such questions formally. Mr. Summers waited with an expression of polite interest while Miss, while Miss Dunbar answered. Horses not but sixteen yet, Miss Dunbar said regretfully. Guess I got a fill-in for the old man this year. Right, Senior Summers said. He made a note on the list he was holding, then he asked. Watson boy drawing this year. A tall boy in the crowd raised his hand. Here, he said. I'm drawing for my mother and me. He blinked his eyes nervously and ducked his head as several voices in the crowd said things like, Good fellow lack, and glad to see your mother's got a man to do it. Well, Mr. Summers said, guess that's everyone. Old man Warner make it? Here, a voice said, and Mr. Summers nodded. A sudden hush fell on the crowd as Mr. Summers cleared his throat and looked at the list. Already, he called. Now I'll read the names, heads of the families first, and the men come up and take a paper out of the box. Keep the paper folded in your hand without looking at it until everyone has had a turn. Everything clear? The people had done it so many times that they only half listened to the directions. Most of them were quiet, wetting their lips, not looking around. And then Mr. Summers raised one hand high and said, Adams, a man disengaged himself from the crowd and came forward. Hi, Steve, Mr. Summers said. And Mr. Adams said hi. Hi, Joe. They grinned at one another humorously and nervously. Then Mr. Adams reached into the black box and took out a folded paper. He held it firmly by one corner as he turned and went hastily back to his place in the crowd, where he stood a little apart from his family, not looking down at his hand. Alan, Mr. Summers said. Anderson. Bentham. Seems like there's no time at all between lotteries anymore, Miss Delacroix said to Miss Graves in the back row. Seems like we got through the last one. 
Only last week. Time sure goes fast, Miss Graves said. Clark, Delacroix. There goes my old man, Miss Delacroix said. She held her breath while her husband went forward. Dunbar, Mr. Summers said, and Miss Dunbar went steadily to the box. While one of the women said, go on, Janie, and another said, there she goes. We're next, Miss Graves said. She watched while Mr. Graves came around from the side of the box, greeted Mr. Summers gravely, and selected a slip of paper from the box. By now, all through the crowd, there were men holding the small folded papers in their large hands, turning them over and over nervously. Miss Dunbar and her two sons stood together, Miss Dunbar holding the slip of paper. Harbert, Hutchinson, get up there, Bill, Miss Hutchinson said, and the people near her laughed. Jones, they do say, Mr. Adams said to the old man Warner, who stood next to him, that over in the North Village, they're talking of giving up the lottery. Old man Warner snorted. Pack of crazy fools, he said, listening to the young folks. Nothing's good enough for them. Next thing you know, they'll be wanting to go back to live in caves. Nobody work anymore. Lived that way for a while, used to be a saying about lottery in June. Corn be heavy soon. First thing you know, we'd all be eating stewed chicken weed and, cor and acorns. There's always been a lottery, he added petulantly. Bad enough to see young Joe Summers up there joking with everybody. Some places have already quit lotteries, Miss Adams said. Nothing but trouble in that, old man Warner said stoutly. Pack of young fools. Martin and Bobby Martin watched his father go forward. Overdyke. Percy. I wish they'd hurry, Miss Dunbar said to her older son. I wish they'd hurry. They're almost through, her son said. You get ready to run till dad, Miss Dunbar said. Mr. Summers called his own name and then stepped forward precisely and selected a slip from the box. Then he called Warner. Seventy-seventh year I've been in the lottery, old man Warner said, as he went through the crowd. Seventy-seventh time. Watson. The tall boy came awkwardly through the crowd. Someone said, don't be nervous, Jack. And Mr. Summers said, take your time, son. Zanini. After that, there was a long pause, a breathless pause, until Mr. Summer, holding a slip of paper in the air, said, All right, fellows, for a minute, no one moved. And then all the slips of paper were opened. Suddenly, all the women began to speak at once, saying, Who is it? Who's got it? Is it the Dunbars? Is it the Watsons? Then the voices began to say, It's Hutchinson. It's Bill. Bill Hutchinson's got it. Go tell your father, Miss Dunbar said to her older son. People began to look around to see the Hutchinsons. Bill Hutchinson was standing quiet, staring down at the paper in his hand. Suddenly, Tessie Hutchinson shouted to Mr. Summers, You didn't give him time enough to take a paper he wanted. I saw you. It wasn't fair. Be a good sport, Tessie, Miss Delacroix called. And Mr. Graves said all of us took the same chance. Shut up, Tessie, Bill Hutchinson said. Well, everyone, Mr. Summers said. That was done pretty fast. Now we've got to be a hurrying a little more to get done in time. He consulted his next list. Bill, he said, you draw for the Hutchinson's family. You got any other households in the Hutchinson's? There's Don and Ava, Mr. Hutchinson yelled. Make them take their chance. Daughters draw with their husbands' families, Tessie, Mr. Summers said gently. You know that as well as anyone else. It wasn't fair, Tessie said. I guess not, Joe, Bill Hutchinson said regretfully. My daughter draws with her husband's family, that's only fair, and I've got no other family except the kids, and as far as drawing for families is concerned, it's you, Mr. Summers said in explanation, and as far as drawing for a household is concerned, that's you too, right? Right, Bill Hutchinson said. How many kids, Bill? Mr. Summers asked formally. Three, Bill Hutchinson said. There's Bill Jr. 
and Nancy and little Dave and Tessie and me. All right then, Mr. Somers said. Harry, you got their tickets back? Mr. Graves nodded and held up the slips of paper. Put them in the box then, Mr. Somers directed. Take bills and put it in. I think we ought to start over, Miss, Miss Hutchinson said as quietly as she could. I tell you it wasn't fair. You didn't- I had seen the magic shop from afar several times. I had passed it once or twice. A shop window of alluring little objects. Magic balls, magic hens, wonderful cones, ventriloquist dolls, the material of the basket trick, packs of cards that looked all right, and all that sort of thing. But never had I thought of going in until one day, almost without warning, Gip hauled me by my finger right up to the window and so conducted himself that there was nothing for it but to take him in. I had not thought the place was there, to tell the truth. A modest-sized frontage in Regent Street, between the picture shop and the place where the chicks run about, just out of patent incubators. There it was, sure enough. I had fancy it was down near the circus, or round the corner in Oxford Street, or even in Holborn, always over the way and a little inaccessible. It had been with something of the mirage in its position, but here it was now, quite indisputably, and the fat end of Gip's pointing finger made a noise upon the glass. If I was rich, said Gip, dabbing a finger at the disappearing egg, I'd buy myself that, and that, which was the crying baby, very human in that, which was a mystery, and called, so a neat card asserted, by one in astonishing your friends. Anything, said Gip, will disappear under one of those cones. I have read about it in a book, and there, Dada, in the vanishing halfpenny, only they've put it this way up, so as we can't see how it's done. Gip, dear boy, inherits his mother's breeding, and he did not propose to enter the shop or worry in any way. Only you know, quite unconsciously, he lugged my finger doorward and made his interest clear. That, he said, and pointed to the magic bottle. If you had that, I said, at which promising inquiry he looked up with a sudden radiance. I could show it to Jesse, he said, thoughtful as ever of others. It's less than a hundred days to your birthday, Gibbles, I said, and laid my hand on the door handle. Gib made no answer, but his grip tightened. But his grip tightened on my finger, and so we came into the shop. It was no common shop, this. It was a magic shop, and all the prancing pre precedence Gip would have taken in the matter of mere toys was wanting. He left the burden of the conversation on me. It was a little narrow shop, not very well lit, and the doorbell pinged again with a plaintive note as we closed it behind us. For a moment or so we were alone and could glance about us. There was a tiger in the paper mache on the glass case that covered the low counter. A grave kind-eyed tiger had that waggled his head in a methodical manner. There were several crystal spheres, a china hand holding magic cards, a stock of magic fishbowls in various scenes, and an immodest magic hat that shamelessly displayed its springs. On the floor were magic mirrors, one to draw you out long and thin, one to swell your head and vanish your legs, and one to make you short and fat like a drought. And while we were laughing at these, the shopman, as I supposed, came in. At any rate, there he was, behind the counter, a curious, sallow, dark man, with, with one ear larger than the other, and a chin like a toe cap of a boot. What can we have the pleasure, he said, spreading his long magic fingers on the glass case. And so with the start we were aware of him. I want, I said, to buy my little boy a few simple tricks. Legitimate, he asked, mechanical, domestic. 
Anything amusing, said I. Hmm, said the shopman, and scratched his head for a moment as if thinking. Then quite distinctly he drew from his head a glass ball. Something in this way, he said, and held it out. The action was unexpected. I had seen the trick done at entertainments endless times before. It's part of the common stock of conjurers, but I had not expected it. That's good, I said with a laugh. Isn't it, said the shopman. Gibbs stretched out his disengaged hand to take the object and found merely a blank palm. It's in your pocket, said the shopman, and there it was. How much will it be, I asked. We make no charge for glass balls, said the shopman politely. We get them. He picked out. He picked one out of his elbow as he spoke. Free. He produced another from the back of his neck and laid it beside its predecessor on the counter. Gip regarded his glass ball sagely, then directed a look of inquiry at the two on the counter, and finally brought his round-eyed scrutiny to the shopman who smiled. You may have those too, said the shopman, and if you don't mind, one from the, my mouth. Gip counseled me mutely for a moment, and then in profound silence put away the four balls, resumed my reassuring finger, and nerved himself for the next event. We get all our smaller tricks in that way, the shopman remarked. I laughed in the manner of one who subscribes to a jest. Instead of going to the wholesale shop, I said, of course it's cheaper. In a way, said the shopman, though we pay in the end, but not so heavily as people suppose. Our larger tricks and our daily provisions and all the other things we want, we get out of that hat. And you know, sir, if you'll excuse my saying it, there isn't a wholesale shop not for genuine magic goods. Sir, I don't know if you noticed our inscription, the genuine magic shop. He drew a business card from his cheek and handed it to me. Genuine, he said with a finger on the word, and added there is absolutely no deception, sir. He seemed to be carrying out the joke pretty thoroughly, I thought. He turned to Gip with a smile of remarkable affability. You, you know you are the right sort of... You, you know you are the right sort of boy. I was surprised at his knowing that, because in the interests of discipline... We keep it rather secret, even at home. But Gip received in an unflinching silence, keeping a steadfast eye on him. It's only the right sort of boy gets through that doorway. And as if by way of illustration, there came a rattling at the door, and a squeaking little voice could be heard faintly. Nyar, I want to go in there, Dada. I want to go in there. Nyar. And then the accents of a downtro downtrodden parent, urging consolation and propitations. It's locked, Edward, he said. But it isn't, said I. It is, sir, said the shopman. Always for that sort of child. Always for that sort of child. And he spoke. We had a glimpse of the other youngster, a little white-faced pallid from sweet eating and over-sapid food and distorted by evil passions, a ruthless little egotist pawing at the enchanted pain. It's no good, sir, said the shopman as I moved with my natural helpfulness doorward and, and presently the spoilt, spoilt child was carried off howling how do you manage that i said breathing a little more freely magic said the shopman with a careless wave of the hand and behold sparks of colored fire flew out of his fingers and vanished into the shadows of the shop you were saying he said addressing himself toward gip before you came in that you would like to buy you would like one of our buy one and astonish your friends boxes Gip, after a gallant effort, said yes. It's in your pocket. And leaning over the counter, he realized he really had an extraordinarily long body. This amazing person produced the article in the customary conjurer's manner. Paper, he said, and took a sheet out of that empty hat with the springs. And behold, his mouth was a string box from which he drew an unending thread. 
which when he had tied his parcel, he bit off, and it seemed to me swallowed the ball of string, and then he lit a candle at the nose of one of the ventriloquist dummies, stuck one of his fingers which had become sealing wax red into the flame, and so sealed the parcel. Then there was the disappearing egg, he remarked, and produced one from within my coat breast and packed it. Also the crying baby, very human. I handed each parcel to Gip as it was ready, and he clasped them to his chest. He said very little, but his eyes were eloquent. The clutch of his arms was eloquent, and he was the playground of ex unex he was the playground of unspeakable emotions. These, you know, were real magics. Then, with a start, I discovered something moving about in my hat, something soft and jumpy. I whipped it off, and a ruffled pigeon, no doubt a confederate, dropped out and ran on the counter and went. I fancy into a cardboard box behind the paper mache tiger. Tut tut, said the shopman, dexterously relieving me of my headdress. Careless bird, and, as I live, nesting. He shook my hat and shook out into his extended hand two or three eggs, a large marble, a watch, and about half a dozen of the inevitable glass balls, and then crumpled, crinkled paper, more and more and more, taking all the time of the way taking all the time of the way in which people neglect to brush their hats inside, as well as out, politely of course, but with all certain personal application. All sorts of things accumulate, sir, not you of course in particular, nearly every customer, astonishing what they carry about with them. The crumpled paper rose and billowed on the counter more and more, until he was nearly hidden from us, until he was altogether hidden, and still his voice went on and on, we none of us know what the fair semblance of a human may none of us know what the fair semblance of a human being may conceal, sir. Are we all then no better than brushed exteriors of whited sepulchres? His voice stopped, exactly like when you hit a neighbor's gramophone with a well aimed brick. The same instant silence, and the rustle of the paper stopped, and everything was still. Have you done with my hat? I said after an interval. There was no answer. I stared at Gip, and Gip stared at me. And there were our distortions in the magic mirrors, looking very rum and grave and quiet. I think we'll go now, I said. Will you tell me how much all this comes to? I say, I said on a rather louder note. I want the bill and my hat, please. It might have been a sniff from behind the paper pile. Let's look behind the counter, Gip, I said. He's making fun of us. I led Gip round the head-wagging tiger. And what do you think there was behind the counter? No one at all. Only my hat on the floor and a... A common conjurer's lop-eared white rabbit lost in meditation, and looking as stupid, as stupid and crumbled as only a conjurer's rabbit can do. I resumed my hat, lolloped a lollop or so out of my way. Dada, said Gip in a guilty whisper. What is it, Gip, said I. I do like this shop, Dada. So should I, I said to myself, if the counter wouldn't suddenly extend itself to shut one off from the door. But I didn't call Gip's attention to that. Pussy, he said with a hand out to the rabbit as it came lolloping past us. Pussy, do give a magic, and his eye had followed it as it squeezed through a door. I had certainly not remarked a moment before. Then this door opened wider, and the man with one ear larger than the other appeared again. He was smiling. He was smiling still, but his eyes met mine with something between amusement and defiance. You'd like to see our, so our showroom, sir, he said, with an innocent suavity. Gip tugged my finger forward. I glanced at the counter and met the shopman's eye again. I was beginning to think the magic was just was just a little too genuine. We haven't very much time, I said, but somehow we were inside the showroom before I could finish that. 
All goods of the same quality, said the shopman, rubbing his, fle his flexible hands together. And that is the best. Nothing in this place that isn't genuine magic, and warranted thoroughly rum. Excuse me, sir? I felt him... <clears throat> I felt him pulling at something that clung to my coat sleeve, and then I saw he held a little wriggling red demon by the tail. The little creature bit and fought, and tried to get at his hand, and in a moment he tossed it carelessly behind the counter. No doubt the thing was only an image of twisted Indiana, India rubber, but for the moment, and his gesture was exactly that of a man who handles some petty biting bit of, petty biting bit of vermin. I glanced at Gip, but Gip was looking at a magic rocking horse. I was glad he hadn't seen the thing. I say, I said in an undertone, indicating Gip and the red demon with my eyes, you haven't many things like that about, have you? None of ours. Probably brought it with you, said the shopman, also in an undertone and with a more dazzling smile than ever. Astonishing what people will carry about with them unawares. And then to Gip, do you see anything you fancy here? There were many things that Gip fancied here. He turned to this astonishing tradesman with a mingled confidence and respect. Is that a magic sword, he said. A magic toy sword. It neither bends, breaks, nor cuts the finger. It renders the bearer invincible in battle against anyone under eighteen. Half a crown to seven and six pence according to size. These panoplies on the cards are for juvenile knights. Errant and very useful. Shield of safety, sandals of swiftness, helmet of invisibility. Oh, Daddy, gasped Gip. I tried to find out what they cost, but the shopman did not heed me. He had Gip now. It got him away from my finger, and he had embarked upon the exposition of all his confounded stock. Nothing was going to stop him. Presently I saw, with a, calm, with a qualm of distrust, something very like jealousy, that Gip had hold of this person's finger as usually he had hold of mine. No doubt the fellow was interesting, I thought, and had an interestingly faked lot of stuff but really good fake stuff, still. I wandered after them, saying very little, but keeping an eye on the pre on this prestidigital fellow. After all, Gip was enjoying it, and no doubt when the time came to go, we should be able to go quite easily. It was a long, rambling place, that, show that showroom, a gallery broken up by stands and stalls and pillars, with archways leading off to other departments, in which the queerest-looking assistants loafed and stared at one with perplexing mirrors and curtains. So perplexing indeed were these that I was presently unable to make out the door by which we had come. The shopmen showed Gip magic trains that ran without steam or clockwork, just as you set the signals, and then some very valuable boxes of soldiers that all, that all came alive directly. He took off the lid and said, I myself having a very quick ear. It was a tongue-twisting sound, but Gip, he has his mother's ears, got it in no time. Bravo, said the shopman, putting the men back into the box unceremoniously and handing it to Gip. Now, said the shopman, and in a moment, Gip had made them all alive again. You take that box, said the, asked the shopman. We'll take that box, said I, unless you charge its full value, in which case I would need a trust magnet. Dear heart, no, said the shopman, swept the little men back again. Shut the lid, waved the box in the air, and there it was in brown paper, tied up and, and with Gip's full name and address on the paper. The shopman laughed at my amazement. This is a genuine magic shop, he said. The real thing. It's a little too genuine for my taste, I said again. After that, he fell to, showing Gip tricks and odd tricks, and still odder the way they were done. He explained them, he turned them inside and out, and there was, dear, there was the dear little chap, nodding, 
with the busy bit of a head in the sagest manner. I did not as I did not attend as well as I might. Hey presto, said the magic shop man. And then there, there would come the clear small, hey presto of the boy. But it was distracted by other things. But I was distracted by other things. I was being borne in upon me, just how tremendously rum this place was. It was, so to speak, inundated with the sense of rumness. There was something a little rum about the fixtures even, about the ceiling, about the floor, about the casually distributed chairs. I had a queer feeling that whenever I wasn't looking at them, straight they went askew, and moved about, and played a noiseless puss in the corner behind my back, and the cornice had a serpentine design with masks, masks altogether too expressive for proper plaster. Then abruptly my attention was caught by one of the odd-looking assistants. He was some way off, and evidently unaware of my presence. I saw a sort of three-quarter length of him over a pile of toys and through an arch, and you know he was leaning against the pillar in an idle sort of way, doing the most horrid things with his features. The particular horrid thing he did was with his nose. He did it just as though he was idle and wanted to amuse himself. First of all, it was a short, blobby nose, and then suddenly he shot it out like a telescope, and then out it flew and became thinner and thinner until it was a long, red, flexible whip, like a thing in a nightmare it was. He flourished it about and flung it forth as a fly fisher flings his line. My instant thought was that Gip mustn't see him. I turned about, and there was Gip, quite preoccupied with the shopman, and thinking no evil. They were whispering together and looking at me. Gip was standing on a little stool, and and the shopman was holding a sort of big red drum, a sort of big drum in his hand. Hide and seek, Dada cried. Gip, you're he. And before I could do anything to prevent it, the shopman had clapped the big drum over him. I saw that was up directly. Take that off! I cried. This instant, you'll frighten the boy. Take it off. The shopman, with his unequal ears, did so without a word and held the big, the big cylinder towards me to show its emptiness. And the little tool was vacant. In that instant, my boy had utterly disappeared. You know, perhaps that sinister something that comes like a hand of the out of. Unless one is wealthy, there is no use in being a charming fellow. Romance is the privilege of the rich, not the profession of the unemployed. The poor should be practical and prosaic. It is better to have a permanent income than to be fascinating. These are the great truths of modern life which Huey Erskine never realized. Poor Huey. Intellectually, we must admit he was not of much importance. He never said a brilliant or even an ill-natured thing in his life. But then he was wonderfully good-looking, with crisp brown hair, his clear-cut profile, and his gray eye. He was as popular with men as he was with women. And he had every accomplishment except that of making money. His father had bequeathed him his cavalry sword and a history of the Peninsular War in fifteen volumes. Huey hung the first over his looking-glass, put the second on a shelf between Ruff's Guide and Bailey's Magazine, and lived on two hundred a year that an old aunt allowed him. He had tried everything. He had gone on to the stock exchange for six months, but what was a butterfly to do among bulls and bears? He had been a tea merchant for a little longer, but had soon tired of Pico and Souchong. Then he had tried selling dry sherry. That did not answer. The sherry was a little too dry. Ultimately, he became nothing. A delightful, 
ineffectual young man with a perfect profile and no profession. To make matters worse, he was in love. The girl he loved was Laura Merton, the daughter of a retired colonel who had lost his temper and his digestion in India, and never found either of them again. Laura adored him, and he was ready to kiss her shoestrings. They were the handsomest couple in London, and had not a penny piece between them. The colonel was very fond of Huey, but would not hear of any engagement. Come to me, my boy, when you have got ten thousand pounds of your own, and we will see about it, he used to say. And Huey looked very glum on those days, and had to go to Laura for consolation. One morning, as he was on his way to Highland Park, where the Mertons lived, he dropped in to see a great friend of his, Alan Trevor. Trevor was a painter indeed. Few people escape that nowadays, but he was also an artist, and artists are rather rare. Personally, he was a strange fellow, with a freckled face and a red ragged beard. However, when he took up the brush, he was a real master, and his pictures were eagerly sought after. He had been very much attracted by Huey at first, it must be acknowledged, entirely on account of his personal charm. The only people a painter should know, he used to say, are people who are beaten beautiful, people who are an artistic pleasure to look at, and an intellectual response to talk to. Men who are dandies and women who are darlings rule the world. At least they should do so. However, after he got to know Huey better, he liked him quite as much for his bright, buoyant spirit and general reckless nature and had given him the permanent entree to his studio. When Huey came in, he found Trevor putting the finishing touches to a wonderful life-size picture of a beggar man. The beggar himself was standing on a raised platform in a corner of the studio. He was a wizened old man with a face like a wrinkled parchment and a most piteous expression. Over his shoulders was slung a coarse brown coat, all tears and tatters, his thick boots, were patched and cobbled with the one hand he leant on a rough stick, while with the other he held out his battered hat for alms. What an amazing model, whispered Huey, as he shook hands with his friend. An amazing model, shouted Trevor at the top of his voice. I should think so. Such beggars as he are not to be met with every day. A true valet, mon cher, a living Velasquez. My stars, what an etching Rambert would have made of him. Poor old chap, said Huey, how miserable he looks. But I suppose to you painters, his face is his fortune. Certainly, replied Trevor. You don't want a beggar to look happy, do you? How much does a model get for sitting, asked Huey, as he found himself comfortable seat on a divan. A shilling an hour. And how much do you get for your picture, Alan? Oh, for this, I get two thousand. Pounds? Guineas. Painters, poets, and physicians always get guineas. Well, I think the model should have a percentage, cried Huey, laughing. They work quite as hard as you do. Nonsense, nonsense. Why look at the trouble of laying on the paint alone and standing all day long as one's easel? It's all very well, Huey, for you to talk, but I assure you that there are moments when art almost attains the dignity of manual labor. But you mustn't chatter. I'm very busy. Smoke a cigarette and keep quiet. After some time, the servant came in and told Trevor that the frame maker wanted to speak to him. Don't run away, Huey, he said as he went out. I will be back in a moment. The old beggar man took advantage of Trevor's absence to rest for a moment on a wooden bench that was behind him. 
He looked so forlorn and wretched that Huey could not help pitying him, and felt in his pockets to see what money he had. All he could find was a sovereign and some coppers. Poor old fellow, he thought to himself. He wants it more than I do, but it means no handsome for a fortnight, and he walked across the studio and slipped the sovereign into the beggar's hand. The old man started, and a faint smile fitted across his withered lips. Thank you, sir, he said. Thank you. Then Trevor arrived, and Huey took his leave, blushing a little at what he had done. He spent the day with Laura, got a charming scolding for his extravagance, and had to walk home. That night he strolled into the Palin Club, about eleven o'clock, and found Trevor sitting by himself in the smoking room, drinking hock and seltzer. Well, Alan, did you get the picture finished all right, he said as he lit his cigarette. Finished and framed, my boy, answered Trevor. And by the by, you have made a conquest. The old model you saw is quite devoted to you, and I had to tell him all about you. Who you are, where you live, and what your income is. What prospects you have. My dear Alan, cried Huey, I shall probably find him waiting for me when I go home. But of course you are only joking, poor old wretch. I wish I could do something for him. I think it is dreadful that anyone should be so miserable. I've got heaps of old clothes at home. Do you think he would care for any of them? Why, his rags were falling to bits. But he looked splendid in them, said Trevor. I wouldn't paint him in a frock coat for anything. What you call rags, I call romance. What seems poverty to you is picturesque to me. However, I'll tell him of your offer. Alan, said Huey seriously, you painters are a heartless lot. An artist's heart is his head, replied Trevor, and our business is to realize the world as we see it, not to reform it as we know it. A chanson metier, and now tell me how Laura is, the old model was quite interested in her. You don't mean to say you talked to him about her, said Huey. Certainly I did. He knows all about the relentless colonel, the lovely Laura, and the ten thousand dollars. He told that old beggar all my private affairs, cried Huey, looking very red and angry. My dear boy, said Trevor, smiling, that old beggar, as you call him, is one of the richest men in Europe. He could buy all London tomorrow without overdrawing his account. He has a house in every capital, dines off gold plates, and can prevent Russia going to war when he chooses. What on earth do you mean, exclaimed Huey. What I say, said Trevor, the old man you saw today in the studio was Baron Hausberg. He's a great friend of mine, buys all my pictures and that sort of thing and gave me a commission a month ago to paint him as a beggar. Que voulez-vous, la fantaisie d'un millionaire? And I must say, he made a magnificent figure in his rags, or perhaps I should say in my rags. They're an old suit I got in Spain. Baron Hausberg cried Huey, good heavens! I gave him a sovereign, and he sank into an armchair, the picture of dismay. Gave him a sovereign, shouted Trevor, and he burst with a roar of laughter. My dear boy, you'll never see it again. Son affair, sis, the argent dissateur. I think you might have told me to Alan, said Huey sulkily, and not have let me make such a fool of myself. Well, to begin with, Huey said, Unless one is wealthy, there is no use in being a charming fellow. Romance is the privilege of the rich, not the profession of the unemployed. The poor should be practical and prosaic. It is better to have a permanent income than to be fascinating. These are the great truths of modern life, which Huey Erskine never realized. Poor Huey. Intellectually, we must admit he was not of much importance. He never said a brilliant 
or even an ill-natured thing in his life. But then he was wonderfully good-looking, with crisp brown hair, his clear-cut profile, and his gray eye. He was as popular with men as he was with women, and he had every accomplishment except that of making money. His father had bequeathed him his cavalry sword and a history of the Peninsular War in fifteen volumes. Huey hung the first over his looking glass, put the second on a shelf between Ruff's Guide and Bailey's Magazine, and lived on two hundred a year that an old aunt allowed him. He had tried everything. He had gone on to the stock exchange for six months. But what was a butterfly to do among bulls and bears? He had been a tea merchant for a little longer, but had soon tired of Pico and Souchong. Then he had tried selling dry sherry. That did not answer. The sherry was a little too dry. Ultimately, he became nothing. A delightful, ineffectual young man with a perfect profile and no profession. To make matters worse, he was in love. The girl he loved was Laura Merton, the daughter of a retired colonel who had lost his temper and his digestion in India and never found either of them again. Laura adored him and he was ready to kiss her shoestrings. They were the handsomest couple in London and had not a penny piece between them. The colonel was very fond of Huey but would not hear of any engagement. Come to me, my boy, when you have got 10,000 pounds of your own and we will see about it, he used to say. And Huey looked very glum on those days, and had to go to Laura for consolation. One morning, as he was on his way to Highland Park, where the Mertons lived, he dropped in to see a great friend of his, Alan Trevor. Trevor was a painter indeed. Few people escape that nowadays, but he was also an artist, and artists are rather rare. Personally, he was a strange fellow, with a freckled face and a red ragged beard. However, when he took up the brush, he was a real master, and his pictures were eagerly sought after. He had been very much attracted by Huey at first, it must be acknowledged, entirely on account of his personal charm. The only people a painter should know, he used to say, are people who are beaten beautiful, people who are an artistic pleasure to look at, and an intellectual response to talk to. Men who are dandies and women who are darlings rule the world. At least they should do so. However, after he got to know Huey better, he liked him quite as much for his bright, buoyant spirit and general reckless nature, and had given him the permanent entree to his studio. When Huey came in, he found Trevor putting the finishing touches to a wonderful life-size picture of a beggar man. The beggar himself was standing on a raised platform in a corner of the studio. He was a wizened old man, with a face like a wrinkled parchment, and a most piteous expression. Over his shoulders was slung a coarse brown coat, all tears and tatters. His thick boots were patched and cobbled with the one hand he leant on a rough stick, while with the other he held out his battered hat for alms. What an amazing model, whispered Huey, as he shook hands with his friend. An amazing model, shouted Trevor at the top of his voice. I should think so. Such beggars as he are not to be met with every day. A Truvali, mon cher, a living Velasquez. My stars, what an etching Rambert would have made of him. Poor old chap, said Huey, how miserable he looks. But I suppose to you painters his face is his fortune. Certainly, replied Trevor. 
You don't want a beggar to look happy, do you? How much does a model get for sitting, asked Huey, as he found himself comfortable seat on the divan. A shilling an hour. And how much do you get for your picture, Alan? Oh, for this, I get two thousand. Pounds? Guineas. Painters, poets, and physicians always get guineas. Well, I think the model should have a percentage, cried Huey, laughing. They work quite as hard as you do. Nonsense, nonsense. Why well, look at the trouble of laying on the paint alone and standing all day long as one's easel. It's all very well, Huey, for you to talk, but I assure you that there are moments when art almost attains the dignity of manual labor. But you mustn't chatter. I'm very busy. Smoke a cigarette and keep quiet. After some time, the servant came in and told Trevor that the frame maker wanted to speak to him. Don't run away, Huey, he said as he went out. I will be back in a moment. The old beggar man took advantage of Trevor's absence to rest for a moment on a wooden bench that was behind him. He looked so forlorn and wretched that Huey could not help pitying him and felt in his pockets to see what money he had. All he could find was a sovereign and some coppers. Poor old fellow, he thought to himself. He wants it more than I do, but it means no handsome for a fortnight. And he walked across the studio and slipped the sovereign into the beggar's hand. The old man started, and a faint smile fitted across his withered lips. Thank you, sir, he said. Thank you. Then Trevor arrived, and Huey took his leave, blushing a little at what he had done. He spent the day with Laura, got a charming scolding for his extravagance, and had to walk home. That night, he strolled into the Palant Club about 11 o'clock, and found Trevor sitting by himself in the smoking room, drinking hock and seltzer. Well, Alan, did you get the picture finished all right, he said as he lit his cigarette. Finished and framed, my boy, answered Trevor. And by the by, you have made a conquest. The old model you saw is quite devoted to you, and I had to tell him all about you. Who you are, where you live, and what your income is. What prospects you have. My dear Alan, cried Huey, I shall probably find him waiting for me when I go home. But of course you are only joking, poor old wretch. I wish I could do something for him. I think it is dreadful that anyone should be so miserable. I've got heaps of old clothes at home. Do you think he would care for any of them? Why, his rags were falling to bits. But he looked splendid in them, said Trevor. I wouldn't paint him in a frock coat for anything. What you call rags, I call romance. What seems poverty to you is picturesque to me. However, I'll tell him of your offer. Alan, said Huey seriously, you painters are a heartless lot. An artist's heart is his head, replied Trevor, and our business is to realize the world as we see it, not to reform it as we know it. A chanson metier, and now tell me how Laura is, the old model was quite interested in her. You don't mean to say you talked to him about her, said Huey. Certainly I did. He knows all about the relentless colonel, the lovely Laura, and the ten thousand dollars. He told that old beggar all my private affairs, cried Huey, looking very red and angry. My dear boy, said Trevor, smiling, that old beggar, as you call him, is one of the richest men in Europe. He could buy all London tomorrow without overdrawing his account. He has a house in every capital, dines off gold plates, and can prevent Russia going to war when he chooses. What on earth do you mean, exclaimed Huey. What I say, said Trevor, the old man you saw today in the studio was Baron Hausberg. He's a great friend of mine, buys all my pictures and that sort of thing and gave me a commission a month ago to paint him as a beggar. Que voulez-vous, la fantaisie d'un millionaire? And I must say, he made a magnificent figure in his rags. 
or perhaps I should say in my rags. They're an old suit I got in Spain. Baron Hausberg cried, Huey, good heavens. I gave him a sovereign, and he sank into an armchair, the picture of dismay. Gave him a sovereign, shouted Trevor, and he burst with a roar of laughter. My dear boy, you'll never see it again. Son affair, sis, the argent disateur. I think you might have told me, to Alan, said Huey sulkily, and not have let me make such a fool of myself. Well, to begin with, Huey said, the New Food by Stephen Leacock. I see from the current columns of the Daily Press that Professor Plum of the University of Chicago has just invented a highly concentrated form of food. All the essential nutritive elements are put together in the form of pellets, each of which contains from one to a hundred times as much nourishment as an ounce of ordinary article of diet. These pellets, diluted with water, will form all that is necessary to support life. The professor looks forward confidently to revolutionizing the present food system. Now this kind of thing may be all very well in its way, but it is going to have its drawbacks as well. In the bright future anticipated by Professor Plum, we can easily imagine such incidents as the following. A smiling family will gather round the hospitable board. The table was plenteously laid with a soup plate in front of each beaming child a bucket of hot water before the radiant mother, and at the head of the board the Christmas dinner of the happy home, warmly covered by a thimble and resting on a poker chip. The expectant whispers of the little ones were hushed as the father, rising from his chair, lifted the thimble, disclosed a small pile of concentrated nourishment on the chip before him. Christmas turkey, cranberry sauce, plum pudding, mince pie, it was all there, all jammed into that little pill only waiting to expand. Then the father, with deep reverence and a devout eye alternating between the pill and heaven, lifted his voice in benediction. At this moment, there was an agonized cry from the mother. Oh, Henry, quick, baby has snatched the pill. It was too true. Dear little Gustavus Adolphus, the golden-haired baby boy, had grabbed the whole Christmas dinner off the poker chip and bolted it. 350 pounds of concentrated nourishment. An old man with steel-rimmed spectacles and very dusty clothes sat by the side of the road. There was a pontoon bridge across the river, and carts, trucks, and men, women and children were crossing it. The mule-drawn carts staggered up the steep bank from the bridge, with soldiers helping push against the spokes of the wheels. The trucks ground up and away, heading out of it all and the peasants plodded along in ankle-deep dust, but the old man sat there without moving. He was too tired to go any farther. It was my business to cross the bridge, explore the bridgehead beyond, and find out to what point the enemy had advanced. I did this and returned over the bridge. There were not so many carts now, and very few people on foot, but the old man was still there. Where do you come from, I asked. From San Carlos, he said and smiled. That was his native town, and so it gave him pleasure to mention it. And he smiled. I was taking care of animals, he explained. Oh, I said, not quite understanding. Yes, he said. I stayed, you see, taking care of animals. I was the last one to leave the town of San Carlos. He did not look like a shepherd nor a herdsman, and I looked at his black dusty clothes and his gray dusty face and his steel room spectacles and said what animals were they? Various animals, he said, and shook his head. I had to leave them. I was watching the bridge in the African-looking country of the Ebro Delta and wondering how long now it would be before we would see the enemy. 
listening all the while for the first noises that would signal that ever mysterious event called contact. And the old man still sat there. What animals were they, I asked. There were three animals altogether, he explained. There were two goats and a cat. And then there were four pairs of pigeons. And you had to leave them, I asked. Yes, because of the artillery. The captain told me to go because of the artillery. And you have no family, I asked, watching the far end of the bridge where a few last carts were hurrying down the slope of the bank. No, he said, only the animals. I stated, the cat, of course, will be all right. A cat can look out for itself, but I cannot think what will become of the others. What politics have you, I asked. I'm without politics, he said. I'm 76 years old. I've come 12 kilometers now, and I think now I can go no farther. This is not a good place to stop, I said. If you can make it, there are trucks up the road where it forks to Tortosa. I will wait a while, he said, and then I will go. Where do the trucks go? Towards Barcelona, I told him. I know no one in that direction, he said, but thank you very much. Thank you again, very much. He looked at me very blankly and tiredly, then said, having to share his worries with someone. The cat will be all right, I am sure. There is no need to be unquiet about the cat. But the others. Now what do you think about the others? Why, they'll probably come through it all right. You think so? Why not, I said, watching the far bank where now there were no carts. But what will they do under the artillery? When I was told to leave because of the artillery. Did you leave the dove cage unlocked, I asked? Yes. Then they'll fly. Yes, certainly they'll fly, but the others. It's better not to think about the others, he said. If you are rested, I would go. I urged, get up and try to walk now. Thank you, he said, and got to his feet, swayed from side to side, and then sat back downwards in the dust. I was taking care of animals, he said dully, but no longer to me. I was only taking care of my animals. There was nothing to do about him. It was Easter Sunday, and the fascists were advancing toward the Ebro. It was a gray, overcast day with a low ceiling, so their planes were not up. That and the fact that cats know how to look after themselves was all the good luck the old man would ever have. My aunt will be down presently, Mr. Mattel, said a very self-possessed young lady of fifteen. In the meantime, you must try and put up with me. Frampton Nuttell endeavored to say the correct something which should duly flatter the niece of the moment without unduly discounting the aunt that was to come. Privately, he doubted more than ever whether these formal visits on a succession of total strangers would do much towards helping the nerve cure which he was supposed to be undergoing. I know how it will be, his sister had said, when he was preparing to migrate to this rural retreat. You will bury yourself down there and not speak to a living soul, and your nerves will be worse than ever from moping. I shall just give you letters of introduction to all the people I know there. Some of them, as far as I can remember, were quite nice. Frampton wondered whether Miss Stapleton, the lady to whom he was presenting one of the letters of introduction, came into the nice division. Do you know many people around here? asked the niece, when she judged they had had sufficient silent communion. Hardly a soul, said Frampton. My sister was staying here at the rectory, you know, some four years ago, and she gave me letters of introduction to some of the people here. He made the last statement in a tone of distinct regret. Then you know practically nothing about my aunt, pursued the self-possessed young lady. Only her name and address, admitted the caller, who was wondering whether Miss Sapleton was in the married or widowed state. An undefinable something about the room seemed to suggest masculine habitation. Her great tragedy happened just three years ago, said the child. 
That would be since your sister's time. Her tragedy, asked Frampton. Somehow in, his, in this restful country spot, tragedies seem out of place. You may wonder why we keep the window wide open on an October afternoon, said the niece, indicating a large French window that opened on the lawn. It is quite warm for the time of year, said Frampton. But has the window got anything to do with this tragedy? Out through that window, three years ago to a day, her husband and her two young brothers went off for their day's shooting. They never came back in, crossing the moor to their favorite snipe-shooting ground. They were all three engulfed in a treacherous piece of bog that had been that dreadful wet summer, you know, and places that were safe in other years gave way suddenly without warning. Their bodies were never recovered. That was the dreadful part of it. Here the child's voice lost its self-possessed note and became falteringly human. Poor aunt always thinks that they will come back some day. They and the little brown spaniel that was lost with them, and walk in at that window just as they used to do. That is why the window is kept open every evening, till it is quite dusk. Poor dear aunt, she has often told me how they went out, her husband with his white waterproof coat over his arm, and Ronnie, her youngest brother, singing Birdie Why Do You Bound, as he always did to tease her, because she said it got on her nerves. Do you know sometimes on still quiet evenings like this, I almost get a creepy feeling that they will all walk through that window. She broke off with a little shudder. It was a relief to Frampton when the aunt bustled into the room, with a whirl of apologies for being late and making her appearance. I hope Vera has been amusing you, she said. She has been very interesting, said Frampton. I hope you do not mind the open window, said Miss Stapleton briskly. My husbands and brothers will be home directly from shooting, and they always come in this way. They've been out for snipe in the marshes today, so they'll make a fine mess over my poor carpet. So like you menfolk, isn't it? She rattled on cheerily about, about the shooting and scarcity of birds, and the prospect for duck in the winter. To Frampton it was all purely horrible. He made a desperate but only partially successful effort to turn the talk onto a less ghastly topic. He was conscious that his hostess was giving him only a fragment of her attention, and her eyes were constantly straying past him to the open window on the lawn beyond. It was certainly an unfortunate coincidence that he should have paid his visit on this tragic anniversary. The doctors agree in ordering me complete rest, an absence of mental excitement, and avoidance of anything in the nature of violent physical exercise, announced Frampton, who labored on the, under the tolerably widespread delusion that total strangers and, ch and chance acquaintances are hungry for the least detail of one's ailment and infirmities, their cause and cure. On the matter of diet, they are not so much in agreement, he continued. No, said Miss Stapleton in a voice which only replaced a yawn at the last moment. Then she suddenly brightened into alert attention, but not to what Frampton was saying. Here they are at last, she cried, just in time for tea. And don't they look as if they were muddy up to the eyes? Frampton shivered slightly and turned toward the niece with a look intended to convey sympathetic comprehension. The child was staring out through the open window with a dazed horror in her eyes, in a chill shock of nameless fear. Frampton swung round in his seat and looked in the same direction. In the deepening twilight, three figures were walking across the lawn towards the window. They all carried guns under their arms, and one of them was additionally burdened with a white coat hung over his shoulder. A tired brown spaniel kept close at their heels. Noiselessly, they neared the house, and then a hoarse young voice chanted out of the dusk. I said, Bertie, why do you bound? Frampton grabbed wildly at his stick and hat. The hall door, the gravel drive, and the front gate were dimly noted stages in his headlong retreat. A cyclist coming along the road had to run into the hedge to avoid imminent collision. Here we are, my dear, said the bearer of the white Macintosh, coming in through the window. Fairly muddy, but most of it's dry. Who was that who bolted out as we came up? A most extraordinary man, a Mr. Nottel, said Miss Stapleton. could only talk about his illness and dashed off without a word or goodbye or apology when you arrived. 
One would think he had seen a ghost. I expect it was the spaniel, said the niece calmly. He told me he had a horror of dogs. He was once hunted into a cemetery somewhere on the, on the banks of the Ganges by a pack of pariah dogs and had to spend the night in a newly dug grave with the creatures snarling and grinning and foaming just above him, enough to make anyone lose their nerve. Romance, at short notice, was her specialty. The long June twilight faded into night. Dublin lay enveloped in darkness from the dim light of the moon it shone through fleecy clouds, casting a pale light as of approaching dawn over the streets and the waters of the Liffey. Around the beleaguered four courts, the heavy guns roared. Here and there through the city, machine guns and rifles broke the silence of the night spasmodically. Like dogs barking on lone farms, Republicans and free staters were waging civil war. On a rooftop near O'Connell Bridge, a Republican sniper lay watching. Beside him lay his rifle and over his shoulders were slung a pair of field glasses. His face was the face of a student, thin and ascetic, but his eyes were the cold gleam of the fanatic. They were deep and thoughtful, the eyes of a man who was used to looking at death. He was eating a sandwich hungrily. He had eaten nothing since morning. He'd been too excited to eat. He finished the sandwich, and taking a flask of whiskey from his pocket, he took a short draught, then he returned the flask to his pocket. He paused for a moment, considering whether he should risk a smoke. It was dangerous. The flash might be seen in the darkness, and there were enemies watching. He decided to take the risk, placing a cigarette between his lips. He struck a match, inhaled the smoke, and Hurley put out the light. Almost immediately, a bullet flattened itself against the parapet of the roof. The sniper took another whiff and put out the cigarette. Then he swore softly and crawled away to the left. Cautiously, he raised himself and peered over the parapet. There was a flash, and a bullet whizzed over his head. He dropped immediately. He had seen the flash. It came from the opposite side of the street. He rolled over the roof to a chimney stack in the rear, and slowly drew himself up behind it until his eyes were level with the top of the parapet. There was nothing to be seen, just the dim outline of the opposite housetop against the blue sky. His enemy was undercover. Just then, an armored car came across the bridge and advanced slowly up the street. It stopped on the opposite side of the street, 50 yards ahead. The sniper could hear the dull panting of the motor. His heart beat faster. It was an enemy car. He wanted to fire, but he knew it was useless. His bullets would never pierce the steel that covered the gray monster. Then, round the corner of a side street came an old woman, her head covered by a tattered shawl. She began to talk to the man in the turret of the car. She was pointing to the roof where the sniper lay, an informer. The turret opened. A man's head and shoulders appeared, looking toward the sniper. The sniper raised his rifle and fired. The head fell heavily on the turret wall. The woman darted toward the side street. The sniper fired again. The woman whirled around and fell with a shriek into the gutter. Suddenly, from the opposite roof, a shot rang out, and the sniper dropped his rifle with a curse. The rifle clattered to the roof. The sniper thought the noise would wake the dead. He stooped to pick the rifle up. He couldn't lift it. His forearm was dead. I'm hit, he muttered. Dropping flat onto the roof, he crawled back to the parapet. With his left hand, he felt the injured right forearm. The blood was oozing through the sleeve of his coat. There was no pain, just a deadened sensation, as if the arm had been cut off. Quickly, he drew his knife from his pocket, opened it on the breastwork of the parapet, and ripped open the sleeve. There was a small hole where the bullet had entered. On the other side, there was no hole. 
The bullet had lodged in the bone. He must have fractured it. He bent the arm below the wound. The arm bent back easily. He ground his teeth to overcome the pain. Then taking out his fuel dressing, he ripped open the packet with his knife. He broke the neck of the iodine bottle and let the bitter fluid drip into the wound. A paroxysm of pain swept through him. He placed the cotton wadding over the wound and wrapped the dressing over it. He tied the ends with his teeth. Then he lay still against the parapet, and closing his eyes, he made an effort of will to overcome the pain. In the street beneath, all was still. The armored car had retired speedily over the bridge, with the machine gunner's head hanging lifeless over the turret. The woman's corpse lay still in the gutter. The sniper lay still for a long time, nursing his wounded arm and planning escape. Morning must not find him wounded on the roof. The enemy on the opposite roof covered his escape. He must kill that enemy, and he could not use his rifle. He had only a revolver to do it. Then he thought of a plan. Taking off his cap, he placed it over the muzzle of his rifle. Then he pushed the rifle slowly upward over the parapet until the cap was visible from the opposite side of the street. Almost immediately there was a report, and a bullet pierced the center of the cap. The sniper slanted the rifle forward. The cap clipped down into the street. Then catching the rifle in the middle, the sniper dropped his left hand over the roof and let it hang, lifelessly. After a few moments, he let the rifle drop to the street. Then he sank to the roof, dragging his hand with him. Crawling quickly to his feet, he peered up at the corner of the roof. His ruse had succeeded. The other sniper, seeing the captain rifle fall, thought he had killed his man. He was now standing before a row of chimney pots, looking across, with his head clearly silhouetted against the western sky. The Republican sniper smiled and lifted his revolver above the edge of the parapet. The distance was about fifty yards, a hard shot in the dim light, and his right arm was painting him like a thousand devils. He took steady aim. His hand trembled with eagerness, pressing his lips together. He took a deep breath through his nostrils and fired. He was almost deafened with the report, and his arm shook with the recoil. Then when the smoke cleared, he peered across and uttered a cry of joy. His enemy had been hit. He was reeling over the parapet in his death agony. He struggled to his feet, but he was slowly falling forward as if in a dream. The rifle fell from his grasp, hit the parapet, fell over, bounded off the pole of a barber's shop beneath, and then clattered on the pavement. Then the dying man on the roof crumpled up and fell forward. The body turned over and over in space and hit the ground with a dull thud. Then it lay still. The sniper looked at his enemy falling and he shuddered. The lust of battle died in him. He became bitten by remorse. The sweat stood out in beads on his forehead. We the long June twilight faded into night. Dublin lay enveloped in darkness from the dim light of the moon that shone through fleecy clouds, casting a pale light as of approaching dawn over the streets and the waters of the Liffey. Around the beleaguered four courts, the heavy guns roared. Here and there through the city, machine guns and rifles broke the silence of the night spasmodically. Like dogs barking on lone farms, Republicans and Free Staters were waging civil war. On a rooftop near O'Connell Bridge, a Republican sniper lay watching. Beside him lay his rifle and over his shoulders were slung a pair of field glasses. His face was the face of a student, thin and ascetic, but his eyes were the cold gleam of the fanatic. They were deep and thoughtful, the eyes of a man who was used to looking at death. He was eating a sandwich hungrily. He had eaten nothing since morning. He had been too excited to eat. He finished the sandwich, and taking a flask of whiskey from his pocket, he took a short draught, then he returned the flask to his pocket. He paused for a moment, 
considering whether he should risk a smoke. It was dangerous. The flash might be seen in the darkness and there were enemies watching. He decided to take the risk, placing a cigarette between his lips. He struck a match, inhaled the smoke and Hurley put out the light. Almost immediately, a bullet flattened itself against the parapet of the roof. The sniper took another whiff and put out the cigarette. Then he swore softly and crawled away to the left. Cautiously, he raised himself and peered over the parapet. There was a flash and a bullet whizzed over his head. He dropped immediately. He had seen the flash. It came from the opposite side of the street. He rolled over the roof to a chimney stack in the rear and slowly drew himself up behind it until his eyes were level with the top of the parapet. There was nothing to be seen, just the dim outline of the opposite housetop against the blue sky. His enemy was undercover. Just then, an armored car came across the bridge and advanced slowly up the street. It stopped on the opposite side of the street, 50 yards ahead. The sniper could hear the dull panting of the motor. His heart beat faster. It was an enemy car. He wanted to fire, but he knew it was useless. His bullets would never pierce the steel that covered the gray monster. Then, round the corner of a side street came an old woman, her head covered by a tattered shawl. She began to talk to the man in the turret of the car. She was pointing to the roof where the sniper lay, an informer. The turret opened. A man's head and shoulders appeared, looking toward the sniper. The sniper raised his rifle and fired. The head fell heavily on the turret wall. The woman darted toward the side street. The sniper fired again. The woman whirled round and fell with a shriek into the gutter. Suddenly, from the opposite roof, a shot rang out and the sniper dropped his rifle with a curse. The rifle clattered to the roof. The sniper thought the noise would wake the dead. He stooped to pick the rifle up. He couldn't lift it. His forearm was dead. I'm hit, he muttered. Dropping flat onto the roof, he crawled back to the parapet. With his left hand, he felt the injured right forearm. The blood was oozing through the sleeve of his coat. There was no pain, just a deadened sensation, as if the arm had been cut off. Quickly, he drew his knife from his pocket, opened it on the breastwork of the parapet, and ripped open the sleeve. There was a small hole where the bullet had entered. On the other side, there was no hole. The bullet had lodged in the bone. It must have fractured it. He bent the arm below the wound. The arm bent back easily. He ground his teeth to overcome the pain. Then taking out his fuel dressing, he ripped open the packet with his knife. He broke the neck of the iodine bottle and let the bitter fluid drip into the wound. A paroxysm of pain swept through him. He placed the cotton wadding over the wound and wrapped the dressing over it. He tied the ends with his teeth. Then he lay still against the parapet, and closing his eyes, he made an effort of will to overcome the pain. In the street beneath, all was still. The armored car had retired speedily over the bridge, with the machine gunner's head hanging lifeless over the turret. The woman's corpse lay still in the gutter. The sniper lay still for a long time, nursing his wounded arm and planning escape. Morning must not find him wounded on the roof. The enemy on the opposite roof covered his escape. He must kill that enemy, and he could not use his rifle. He had only a revolver to do it. Then he thought of a plan. Taking off his cap, he placed it over the muzzle of his rifle. Then he pushed the rifle slowly upward over the parapet until the cap was visible from the opposite side of the street. Almost immediately, there was a report, and a bullet pierced the center of the cap. The sniper slanted the rifle forward. The cap clipped down into the street. Then catching the rifle in the middle, the sniper dropped his left hand over the roof and let it hang, lifelessly. After a few moments, he let the rifle drop to the street. Then he sank to the roof, dragging his hand with him. Crawling quickly to his feet, he peered up at the corner of the roof. His ruse had succeeded. The other sniper, seeing the cap and rifle fall, thought he had killed his man. 
He was now standing before a row of chimney pots, looking across, with his head clearly silhouetted against the western sky. The Republican sniper smiled and lifted his revolver above the edge of the parapet. The distance was about fifty yards, a hard shot in the dim light, and his right arm was painting him like a thousand devils. He took steady aim. His hand trembled with eagerness, pressing his lips together. He took a deep breath through his nostrils and fired. He was almost deafened with the report, and his arm shook with the recoil. Then, when the smoke cleared, he peered across and uttered a cry of joy. His enemy had been hit. He was reeling over the parapet in his death agony. He struggled to his feet, but he was slowly falling forward as if in a dream. The rifle fell from his grasp, hit the parapet, fell over, bounded off the pole of a barber's shop beneath, and then clattered on the pavement. Then the dying man on the roof crumpled up and fell forward. The body turned over and over in space and hit the ground with a dull thud. Then it lay still. The sniper looked at his enemy falling and he shuddered. The lust of battle died in him. He became bitten by remorse. The sweat stood out in beads on his forehead. We I repeat to you gentlemen that your inquisition is fruitless. Detain me here forever if you will. Confine or execute me if you must. Have a victim to appropriate the illusion you call justice. But I can say no more than I have said already. Everything that I can remember, I have told with perfect candor. Nothing has been distorted or concealed, and if anything remains vague, it is only because of the dark cloud which has come over my mind, that cloud and the nebulous nature of the horrors which brought it upon me. Again I say, I do not know what has become of Harley Warren, though I think, almost hope, that he is in peaceful oblivion. If there be anywhere so blessed a thing, it is true that I have for five years been his close friend, and a partial sharer of his terrible researches into the unknown. I will not deny, though my memory is uncertain and indistinct, that this witness of yours may have seen us together as he says, on the Gainesville Pike, walking toward the big cypress swamp at half-past eleven on that awful night, that we bore electric lanterns, spades, and a curious coil of wire with attached instrument, I will even affirm, for these things all played a part in the single hideous scene which remains burned in my shaken recollection, but of what followed, and of the reason I was found alone and dazed on the edge of the swamp next morning, I must insist that I know nothing, save what I have told you over and over again. You say to me that there is nothing in the swamp or near it which could form the setting of that frightful episode. I reply that I know nothing beyond what I saw, vision or nightmare it may have been, vision or nightmare i fervently hope it was yet it is all that my mind retains of what took place in those shocking hours after we left the sight of men and why harley warren did not return he or his shade or some nameless thing i cannot describe alone can tell as i have said before the weird studies of harley warren were well known to me and to some extent shared by me of his vast collection of strange rare books on forbidden subjects i have read all that are written in the languages of which i am master but there are few as compared with those in languages i cannot understand most, I believe, are in Arabic, and the fiend-inspired book, which brought on the end, the book which he carried in his pocket, out of the world, was written in characters whose like I never saw elsewhere. Warren would never tell me just what was in that book, as to the nature of our studies. Must I say again that I no longer retain full comprehension? It seems to me rather merciful that I do not, before they were terrible studies, which I pursued more through reluctant fascination than through actual inclination. Warren almost dominated me, 
and sometimes I feared him. I remember how I shuddered at his facial expression on the night before the awful happening, when he talked so incessantly of his theory why certain corpses never decay, but rest firm and fat in their tombs for a thousand years. But I do not fear him now, for I suspect these known horrors are beyond my ken. Now I fear for him. Once more I say that I have no clear idea of our object on that night. Certainly it had much to do with something in the book which Warren carried with him, that ancient book in undecipherable character which had come to him from India a month before. But I swear I do not know what it was that we expected to find. Your witness says he saw us at half past eleven on the Gainesville Pike, headed for Big Cypress Swamp. This is probably true, but I have no distinct memory of it. The picture seared into my soul is of one scene only, and the hour must have been long after midnight, for a waning crescent moon was high in the vaporous heaven. The place was an ancient cemetery, so ancient that I trembled at the manifold signs of immemorial years. It was in deep, damp hollow, overgrown with rank grass, moss, and curious creeping weeds, and filled with a vague stench, which my idle fancy associated absurdly with rotting stone. On every hand were the signs of neglect and decrepitude, and I seemed haunted by the notion that Warren and I were the first living creature to invade a lethal silence of centuries. Over the valley's rim, wan, waning crescent moon peered through the noisome vapor that seemed to emanate from the unheard of catacomb, and by its feeble, wavering beam, I could distinguish a repellent array of antique slabs, urns, cenotaphs, and mausolean facades, all crumbling, moss-grown, and moisture-stained, and partly concealed by the gross luxuriance of the unhealthy vegetation. My first vivid impression of my own presence in this terrible necropolis concerns the act of pausing with Warren before a certain half-obliterated sepulchre, and of throwing down some burdens which we seemed to have been carrying. I now observed that I had with me an electric lantern and two spades, whilst my companion was supplied with a similar lantern and a portable telephone outfit. No word was uttered, for the spot and the task seemed known to us, and without delay we seized our spades and commenced to clear away the grass, weeds, and drifted earth from the flat, archaic mortuary. After uncovering the entire surface, which consisted of three immense granite slabs, we stepped back some distance to survey the charnel scene, and Warren appeared to make some mental calculations. Then he returned to the sepulchre, and using his spade as a lever, sought to pry up the slab lying nearest the stony ruin, which may have been a monument in its day. He did not succeed, and motioned me to come to his assistance. Finally, our combined strength loosened the stone, which we raised and tipped to one side. The removal of the slab revealed a black aperture, from which rushed an effluence of miasmal gases so nauseous that we started back in horror. After an interval, however, we approached the pit again, and found the exhalations less unbearable. Our lanterns disclosed the top of a flight of stone steps, dripping with some detestable ichor of the inner earth, and bordered by moist walls encrusted with nitre. And now, for the first time, my memory records verbal discourse, Warren addressing me at length in his mellow tenor voice, a voice singularly unperturbed by our awesome surroundings. I'm sorry to have to ask you to stay on the surface, he said but it would be a crime to let anyone with your frail nerves go down there. You can't imagine, even from what you have read, and from what I've told you, the things I shall have to see and do. It's fiendish work, Carter. 
and I doubt if any man without ironclad sensibilities could ever see it through and come up alive and sane. I don't wish to offend you, and heaven knows I'd be glad enough to have you with me, but the responsibility is in a certain sense mine, and I couldn't drag a bundle of nerves like you down to probable death or madness. I tell you, you can't imagine what the thing is really like, but I promise to keep you informed over the telephone of every move. You see, I've enough wire here to reach the center of the earth and back. I can still hear, in my memory, those coolly spoken words. And I can still remember my, my remonstrance. I seemed desperately anxious to accompany my friend into these sepulchral depths. Yet he proved inflexibly obdurate. At one time, he threatened to abandon the expedition if I remained insistent. A threat which proved effective, since he alone held the key to the thing. All of this I can still remember, though I no longer know what manner of thing we sought. After he had secured my reluctant acquiescence in his design, Warren picked up the reel of wire and adjusted the instrument. At his nod, I took one of the latter and seated myself upon an aged, discolored gravestone, close by the newly uncovered aperture. Then he shook my hand, shouldered the coil of wire, and disappeared within the indescribable ossuary. For a moment, I kept sight of the glow of his lantern, and I heard the rustle of the wire as he laid it down after but the glow soon disappeared abruptly, as if a turn in the stone staircase had been encountered, and the sound died away almost as quickly. I was alone, yet bound to the unknown depths by those magic strands, whose insulated surface lay green beneath the struggling beams of that waning crescent moon. In the lone silence of that hoary and deserted city of the dead, my mind conceived the most ghastly fantasies and delusions, and the grotesque shrines and monoliths seemed to assume a hideous personality, a half-sentient, amorphous shadow seemed to lurk in the darker recesses of the weed-choked hollow, and to flit as in some blasphemous ceremonial procession past the portals of the moldering tombs in the hillside, shadows which could not have been cast by the pallid, peering crescent moon. I constantly consulted my watch by the light of my electric lantern, and listened with feverish anxiety at the receiver of the telephone, but for more than a quarter of an hour heard nothing. Then a faint clicking came from the instrument, and I called down to my friend, in a tense voice. Apprehensive as I was, I was nevertheless unprepared for the words which came up from the uncanny vaults, in accents more alarmed and quivering than any I had heard before from Harley Warren. He who had so calmly left me a little while previously, now called from below in a shaky whisper, more pretentious than the loudest shriek. God, if you could see what I am seeing. I could not answer, speechless. I could only wait. Then came the frenzied tone again. Carter, it's terrible, monstrous, unbelievable. This time my voice did not fail me, and I poured into the transmitter a flood of excited questions. Terrified, I continued to speak to Warren. What is it? What is it? Once more came the voice of my friend, still hoarse with fear, and now apparently tinged with despair. I can't tell you, Carter. It's too utterly beyond thought. I dare not tell you. No man could know it and live. Great God, I never dreamed of this. Stillness again, save for my now incoherent torrent of shuddering inquiry. Then the voice of Warren in a pitch of wilder consternation. Carter, for the love of God, put back the slab and get out of this if you can. Quick, leave everything else and make for the outside. It's your only chance. Do as I say, and don't ask me to explain. I heard, yet was able only to repeat my frantic questions. Around me were the tombs and the darkness and the shadows, below me some peril, 
beyond the radius of the human imagination. But my friend was in greater danger than I, and through my fear I felt a vague resentment that he should deem me capable of deserting him under such circumstances. More clicking, and after a pause a piteous cry from Morn. Beat it for God's sake. Put back the slab and beat it, Carter. Something in the boyish slang of my evidently stricken companion unleashed my faculty. I formed and shouted a resolution. Warren, brace up. Someone else should be telling this story. Someone who understands the funny kind of football they play down in South America. Back in Moscow, Idaho, we grab the ball and run with it. In the small but prosperous republic, which I'll call Perivia, they kick it around with their feet. And that is nothing to what they do to the umpire. One of the first things I learned when I got to Perivia, after various distressing adventures in the less democratic parts of South America, was the last year's match had been lost owing to the knavish dishonesty of the referee. He had, it seemed, penalized most of the players on the team, disallowing a goal, and generally made sure that the best side wouldn't win. This diatribe made me quite homesick, but remembering where I was, I merely commented, you should have paid him more money. We did, was the bitter reply, but the Panagorans got at him later. Too bad, I answered. It's hard nowadays to find an honest man who stays bought, the customs inspector, who'd just taken my last hundred dollar bill had the grace to blush beneath his stubble as he waved me across the border. The next few weeks were tough, but presently I was in what I prefer to call the agricultural machinery business. The last thing I had time to bother about was football. I knew that my expensive imports were going to be used at any moment and wanted to make sure that this time my profit went with me when I left the country. Even so, I could hardly ignore the excitement as the day for the return match drew near. For one thing, it interfered with business. Even so, I could hardly ignore excitement as the day for the return match drew near. For one thing, it interfered with business. I'd go to a conference arranged with great difficulty and expense at a safe hotel, and half of the time, everyone would be talking about football. Gentlemen, I'd protest. Our next consignment of rotary drills is being unloaded tomorrow, and unless we get that permit from the Ministry of Agriculture, some busybody may open the cases, and then... Don't worry, my boy, General Sierra or Colonel Pedro would answer airily. That's already taken care of. Leave it to the army. I knew better than to retort, which army? And for the next ten minutes, I'd have to listen to arguments about football tactics and the best way of dealing with recalcitrant referees. It was then that Don Hernando Diaz's name came up for the first time. I knew of him as one of the country's leading industrialists, but he had an equal reputation as playboy, racing car driver, and scientific dilettante. It surprised me to learn that he was one of us, for he was a favorite of President Ruiz. Naturally, I'd never met him. He had to be very particular about his friends, and there were few people who cared to meet me unless they had to. I suspected that something was happening when I took my place in the football stadium on that memorable day. If you think I had no wish to be there, you are quite correct, but Colonel Pedro had given me a ticket 
He was unhealthy to hurt his feelings by not using it. There had been a slight delay in admitting the spectators. The police had done their best, but it takes time to search a hundred thousand people for concealed firearms. The visiting team had insisted on this to the great indignation of the locals. The protests faded swiftly enough, however, as the artillery accumulated at the check. Then a sweating band played the two national anthems. The teams were presented to El Presidente and his lady, and the cardinal blessed everybody. While we were waiting, I examined the program, a beautiful, fully produced affair that had been given to me by the lieutenant. It was tabloid size, printed on art paper and bound in metal foil that gleamed like silver. You could see your face in it, and I noticed a number of ladies using it to make their last-minute repairs and adjustments. I also noticed that this special victory souvenir issue had been paid for by an impressive list of subscribers, headed by himself, Don Hernando who had himself, it seemed, presented 50,000 free copies to our gallant fighting men. If this was a bid for popularity, it seemed rather naive one. And surely President Ruiz wouldn't let half his army be bottled up in this stadium for the best part of an afternoon. These reflections were interrupted by the roar of the enormous crowd as play started. For the first ten minutes, it was a pretty open game and I don't think there were more than three fights. The Peruvians just missed one goal. The ball was headed out so neatly that the frantic applause from the Panaguaran supporters, who had a special police guard and a fortified section of the stadium all to themselves, went quite unbooed. I began to feel disappointed. Why, if you change the shape of the ball, this might be a good-natured Idaho game. There was no real work for the Red Cross until nearly halftime, when three Peruvians and two Panaguarans, or it may have been the other way around, fused together in a magnificent melee, from which only one survivor emerged under his own power. The casualties were carted off amid much pandemonium, and there was a short break while replacements were brought up. This started the first major incident. The Peruvians complained that the other side's wounded were shaming so that fresh reserves be poured in. But the referee was adamant the new men came on and the background noise dropped just below the threshold of pain as the game resumed. The Panaguarans promptly scored. And though none of my neighbors actually committed suicide, several seemed close to it. The transfusion of new blood had apparently pepped up the visitors. Things looked bad for the home team. Their opponents were passing the ball with such skill that the Peruvians' defenses were as porous as a sieve. At this rate, I told myself, the ref can afford to be honest. His side will win anyway. And to give him his due, I'd seen no sign of any obvious bias so far. I didn't have long to wait. A last-minute rally by the home team blocked a threatened attack on the goal and a mighty kick by one of the defenders sent the ball rocketing toward the other end of the field. Before it had reached the apex of its flight, the piercing shriek of the referee's whistle brought the game to a halt. There was a brief consultation between ref and the captains. The crowd was roaring its disapproval. What's happening now? I asked plaintively. The ref said our man was offsides, but how can he be? He's on top of his own goal. Shush, said the lieutenant. 
obviously unwilling to waste his enlightenment on my ignorance. I don't shush easily, but this time I let it go and tried to work things out for myself. It seemed that the ref had awarded the Panagorans a free kick at our goal, and I could understand the way everybody felt about it. The ball soared through the air in a beautiful parabola, nicked the post and cannoned in. A mighty roar of anguish rose from the crowd, then died abruptly to a silence that was even more impressive. It was as if a great animal had been wounded and was bidding the time for its revenge. Despite the heat pouring down from the not-so-far vertical sun, I felt a sudden chill as if a cold wind had swept past me. Not for all the wealth of the Incas would I have changed places with the man sweating out there on the field in his bulletproof vest. We were two down, but there was still hope. A lot could happen before the end of the game. The Peruvians were on their mettle now, playing with almost demonic intensity, like men who had accepted a challenge were going to show that they could beat it. The new spirit paid off promptly. The home team scored one impeccable goal within a couple of minutes, and the crowd went wild with joy. By this time I was shouting like everyone else and telling the that referee things I didn't know I could say in Spanish. It was one-two now, and a hundred thousand people were praying and cursing for the goal that would bring us level again. It came just after halftime. The ball had been passed to one of our forwards. He ran about fifty feet with it evaded a couple of defenders with some neat footwork and kicked it cleanly into the goal. It had scarcely dropped down from the net when the whistle blew again. Now what I wondered, he can't disallow that, but he did. The ball, it seemed, had been handled. I've got pretty good eyes and I never saw it, so I cannot honestly say that I blame anyone for what happened next. The police managed to keep the crowd off the field, though it was a touch and go for a minute. The two teams drew apart, leaving the center of the pitch bare except for the stubbornly defiant figure of the referee. He was probably wondering how he could make his escape from the stadium and was consoling himself with the thought that when this game was over, he could retire for good. The thin high bugle call took everyone completely by surprise. Everyone that is except for the 50,000 well-trained men who had been waiting for it with mounting impatience. The whole arena became instantly silent, so silent that I could hear the noise of the traffic outside the stadium. A second time that bugle sounded, and all the vast acreage of faces opposite me vanished in a blinding sea of fire. I cried out and covered my eyes for one horrified moment. I thought of atomic bombs and braced myself uselessly for the blast. There was no concussion, only that flickering veil of flame that beat even through my closed eyelids for long seconds, then vanished as swiftly as it had come. When the bugle blared out for the third and last time, everything was just as it had been before, except for one minor item. Where the referee had been standing, there was a small smoldering heap from which a thin